This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Brownie Day. Mm-hmm. First brownies ever made. Set the bar for the hedonistic indulgence. <laughs> Happy Brownie Day. You can't you can't have just one. I am the healthiest human ever known to man. <laughs> yes, I am. Welcome to the show. This is the show where we give you the tools, the information you need to grow a healthier, happier life. And holy cow. Uh, Donald Trump. Some of you may uh, some of you may be offended by what the Trumpster has uh, been saying in the news recently. Uh, some of you don't even know what he said. Basically, he thinks you know it's probably a really good idea that we just don't let any Muslims into America. That's Donald Trump's new song theme song for his uh, candidacy, The Wrecking Ball. You think? You know what is so funny about the Donster? I honestly don't believe he believes this. He he is sucking all of the air out of the GOP, and he knows that if he can suck it out for about another month and a half, he might actually walk to the nomination. Because they, they don't, no, no one, none of them know what to say right now. They're all ticked, except for Cruz, who doesn't want to say anything. Right. Well, I mean, they, they go after him, and then he just starts throwing the fact that they have absolutely no polling numbers, right, right. their organization's right. garbage. He just. So, that it, so what I think he does is he drops these bombs that then ensures he will be the center of attention for the next two weeks. And this is probably the fourth or fifth yeah. type of, you know, just extreme comment he's made, and every time his poll numbers uh-huh. have gone up. Well, and the one reason I think they go up is because nobody can hear the other people talking. That's one reason. Because yeah. they're just a bunch of cats running around. But he's getting the press. That's working. He probably doesn't believe it because he's already making billions probably in Dubai and the Trump Dubai. I read an article today. He, he has a problem with Muslims unless they're paying him. Oh, and then sure. he's fine with that, and he's sitting, there's all these pictures of him standing there with, <laughs> with you know, people he's built hotels with. And- well, let's let the ones in that pay. But see, that's I think, I think he's running out the clock. I truly do believe he's running out the clock, and he's using fear. He's fear baiting. Yeah, but he doesn't believe this. This is just another thing. How, how are you gonna How are you gonna determine if they're Muslim? Well, we're gonna ask. There's no there's no plan of implementa- right. implementation. They're just simply right. saying things and moving on. And then all the Which press and everybody functioning. talks about it and they're all freaking out and then they get on all their experts and everyone's mad. And I think the reality is it's a it's a trick. Yeah. It's a Trojan horse. You get to hear Trump's name 50,000 <laughs> times. Yeah. But this is a topic that it's has a been issue. discussed for yeah. quite a while in many different conservative right. areas. And and so there are a group of people who would sure. be elevated to listen to this and think this is a good idea. It's kind of like when you make a Barry Manilow joke, like just a joke about Barry right. Manilow. And you're saying it as a joke, but, you know, half the people in the room love Barry Manilow. 
Yeah. So well, he, he goes out and he says some. Half. Well, but a certain percentage are like, dude, what, you're serious? You don't like Barry Manilow? And I'm, yeah. But 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 there's there's a percentage that are right on. You're correct. That yeah, you Barry nailed Manilow it. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then there's that one guy that's the super fan with the concert T-shirt. You're <laughs> like, sorry, dude. That's right. <laughs> sorry, man. Um, it's. I don't think he. I truly. I think he's just throwing that out there. He throws it out as fodder, and everyone jumps on it. But in the end, it's the real. In fact, I loved the article CNN wrote about the shocking truth about Muslims. I don't know if you saw this. The shocking truth about Muslims in America. It blows up most of our myths and our stereotypes. They are a minuscule portion of the population. What percentage of the population do you think are make up are Muslim in the United States? What under five percent? Less than one percent. Less than one percent of the U.S. population. I wasn't going to go there. By twenty five or twenty fifty, they believe the numbers will grow to two point one percent. Whoa! So it's a tiny, tiny yeah. portion of the population. Uh, they're better educated than most Americans. U.S. Muslims have the second highest level of education among major religious groups in the country. Jews have the highest, and a greater proportion of them have college degrees than the general U.S. population. So they're more educated. I know, but that's why i got to watch out for them. Damn is educated. It's been the same since the founding of our country. There's right. always a group of people that we as a as a, a we as a, I guess as a, a nation oh. there's a large portion of the country sees they're the problem. Yesterday was Pearl Harbor Day. Do we remember Topaz? Topaz is where they sent all the Japanese Americans. Oh, yeah. Well, no, there was you know several right. internment camps. Topaz was one of them. Can yeah. you can you do you not see a parallel here? Didn't he? He even made his comment. Yeah. On December seventh. Well, Trump also was asked about Japanese internment camps, and he said, "Yeah, he's open to the idea. He thought that was <laughs> oh, at the time was something we needed to do." Not against the Japanese, though. I hope. Ooh, I don't know. I didn't go. I just saw the headline. Went, oh, I can't do this anymore. Check this out. Uh, but the Muslim world—they're oppressive to women, right? Yes. While many parts of the Muslim world are, women are confined to second-class citizens. The case of American Muslims—that's not the truth. Virtually all of them, ninety percent, agree that women should be able to work outside the home. American Muslim women hold more college or postgraduate degrees than Muslim men do. And they are more likely to work in professional fields than women from most other U.S. religious groups. So they do integrate. They are in, They are educated. But he's just talking – I mean the ones that are here are fine, he says. They're fine. It's the ones coming into the country. Well, right. Now, b- why? Because we don't trust them. However, uh, the Muslim Americans have been more involved in helping to fight terrorism in the United States than probably any other group. Well, those ones are OK. Yeah. Sure. The bar keeps sliding around as to right. who this this will uh, I mean, encompass. So. It's you, since twenty since two thousand one, one hundred nine Muslim Americans have plotted target against targets in the United States, and terrorism by Muslim Americans killed fifty in the same time period. Contrast that with the deaths from the mass shootings just last year: one hundred thirty six, more than twice as many of the deaths last year in mass shootings from the thirteen years of Muslim American terrorism. I know. He wants to try to keep them out. How do you do that? Ask him? Not sure. I, and he doesn't know either. No. And that, as you're, which is, I, that's his point. And as you're saying, I don't think he cares either. It's not the point. It's like the wall was a, irrelevant. Yeah. It's just a statement that then sucks all the press, and, it, and he's done it. He will now run out the clock to Christmas. So then all he has to worry about is post-Christmas, one month, until the Iowa votes. So I'm going to bet in... In January, you're going to hear another ludicrous, crazy 
press-sucking statement. And a lot of pro-corn rhetoric. <laughs> that's true. That's true. For Iowa. What we need to do. We love corn. Everybody needs corn. <laughs> anyway, uh, but again, I don't want to give him even more time because he's he, – I don't – he's just playing everyone, which he does brilliantly. I mean, think of all this. He doesn't even need a press secretary to do any of this. No. He makes a comment. Bada boom, bada bing. He'll run out the clock. Um, but we've got a great guest today. Dr. Paul Godfrey from Brigham Young University is going to be joining us. He's going to help us understand um, the impact of religion on business and financial economies, and uh, including the Muslim world. Like You may not know this, but by the year 2050, uh, the, Christian, the cr- Christian religions – they're they're struggling to to be relevant around the world. They're struggling to take hold around the world, while the Muslim worlds or the Muslim religion is growing. And there's a huge impact about what religion does to businesses and economies. We'll be talking about an article that was uh, that was written called "The New Survey Reveals Faith's Impact on Global Economies." Dr. Paul Godfrey from Brigham Young University is going to be joining us and talking about the importance of understanding religion, and I think it'll add a lot of insight into what's going on with Donald Trump. Again, Donald Trump is going to Abu Dhabi to make money on Muslims and has to understand the Muslim faith. Yes. Yet he's over here offending. He employs people that probably have a better idea. But it will – I'm going to bet these comments will impact his financial status in Abu Dhabi. Eh, You know what I mean? But as he tells us, he has a lot of money. He also probably doesn't care right now because he's trying to win the presidency. But um, anyway, you got to understand religion if you want to understand business in the area where these religions are practiced. So we'll be talking about that fascinating discussion in just a minute. But before we do that, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. As we have been talking about Donald Trump's comments on Monday called for a blocking of all Muslims from entering the U.S. Donald, The statement says Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what's going on, his campaign said in a statement. The press release sent by Trump's campaign titled Donald J. Trump's Statement on Preventing Muslim Immigration. But as the statement seems to go beyond immigration, calling for total and complete shutdown of all Muslims from entering the country, he was on Fox News and was asked about the statement. We have problems going on. Nobody wants to talk about the problems. I watched the president last night in one of the most ridiculous speeches I've ever seen, and he doesn't want to address the real problem. He won't even mention the term the term, the name of what's going on. So when you have a president like that, you're never going to solve problems. In the statement, uh, Donald Trump talks about a survey. He keeps citing the survey that talks about uh, some some interesting numbers when it comes to uh, people, uh, Muslims in America and their feelings about attacks on America and that kind of thing. So the survey is uh, came from the Center for Security Policy, which is a a think tank founded by a, an anti-Muslim activist, which has been widely accused of prompting are promoting conspiracy theories and claims that a global jihad movement exists. Trump's statement said that the group's poll found 25% of people surveyed agree that violence against Americans is justified as a part of the global jihad. It also found more than half of people surveyed agree that Muslims in America should have the choice of being governed according to Sharia law, which is uh, a... Yeah. Yeah. So an extreme group, anti-Muslim, has done a study... And the study seems to show that 25% of Americans believe that there should be Sharia law in the United States. 
I don't know why I struggle to believe that. Yeah, so the information he's coming from seems to have some issues with it. Uh, in other news, both suspects from the San Bernardino, California shooting that killed 14 people had been radicalized for some time and had participated in target practice as recent as days before the December 3rd shooting, according to this according to the FBI. Uh, investigators are still looking into whether the suspects had links to any foreign terrorist groups. Uh, the husband and wife, uh, uh, Syed Farouk and Tafshin Malik, alleged, allegedly had uh, 19 pipe bombs in their apartment that could have been used to uh, 19 pipes in their apartment that could have been used to make bombs. The Islamic State has claimed that the suspects who uh, died exchanging gunfire with police were followers of their group. Hmm. Uh, a new report says that the number of foreign fighters traveling to Syria and Iraq to fight for the Islamic State and other militant groups has more than doubled over the last 18 months. The uh, Sufan Group, an international consultancy firm based in New York, using U.N. data figures from some official government estimates and academic resources, come up with the findings. June 2014, 12,000 foreign fighters in the region were identified, and now there are 27 to 31,000 from 86 different countries. So the apparently their membership drive has been successful. Um, in other news, Cleveland Cavaliers forward LeBron James, you hear about this? No. He signed a lifetime deal with Nike. Oh, wow. Till, believe, so till he dies. Believed to be the first of the company's 44-year history, the first time they've done this. <laughs> it goes, they don't even have this kind of a deal no. with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Says, we can confirm that we have agreed to a lifetime relationship with LeBron that provides significant value to our business, brand, and shareholders. This is a statement from Nike. We have already built a strong LeBron business over the last 12 years, and we see the potential for that to continue to grow throughout his playing career and that beyond. That is great. The company did not say how much the deal was worth, but a source told ESPN it soars beyond the $300 million 10-year deal that Oklahoma City Thunder forward Kevin Durant signed. Uh, last summer, a lifetime deal, which means we will be he'll be selling he'll be selling like those white, you know, court what are yeah. they called uh, court classic kind of shoes that the seniors wear. All that, yeah, support hose It'll with like cr- little Nike insignia on it. In twenty in two thousand three, when LeBron entered the league, Nike signed a ninety year seven a ninety million dollar seven year contract with him. People thought that was outrageous. He hadn't yeah. played a game yet. And now they're going for a, a Interesting. deal. So. Well, good. That's just what we need. Seniors for the next 40 years will be able to brand their clothes. Hey, my leisure suit, my leisure suit brought to you by Nike. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. We've got a great uh, guest coming up. Dr. Paul Godfrey will be joining us. He is going to be talking to us about faith and the impact of religion on economic growth. So as... Faith spreads around the world, uh, so too do economic opportunities. Businesses opening up in in different countries, in different areas, but you're going to have to understand the faith of others if you want uh, or have any hope of trying to uh, do business with them. Stick with us, folks. We're going to be talking about uh, religious diversity and economic growth. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as we have been talking about uh, the Don, the Donald Trumpster, there's an there's an incredible irony going on with his latest comments that you may not uh, 
have, have noticed or paid attention to. Donald is known for, for being a billionaire, right? He talks about how incredibly successful and wealthy he is. And yet his latest, um, his latest statement about basically not allowing Muslims into the country may be running head into, straight on to a head-on collision with some of the latest research um, in business growth and economic development. According to an, uh, a, a research uh, that was led by Dr. Brian Grimm and Dr. Philip Connor, titled Changing Religion, Changing Economies, the Future Global Religious and Economic Growth, that was a white paper um, from the Foundation for Religious Freedom and Business, between 2010 and 2050, religious populations worldwide are expected to grow 23 times larger than the growth of religiously unaffiliated populations. Okay? So, in fact, during the period of time from 2010 to 2050, the number of people affiliated with religion is expected to grow 2.3 billion people, from 5.8 billion currently, roughly, to 8.1 billion in 2050. While the number of people unaffiliated with any of religion is projected to increase from only 1.13 billion in 2010 to 1.23 billion in 2050. So what does this all mean for the economy? Well, according to our next guest, Dr. Paul Godfrey, who is the William and Rossil Lowe Professor of Business Strategy at the Marriott School of Management here at Brigham Young University, he's here to talk to us about the fact that when we are religiously diverse and have religious freedom, economic growth abounds. When we start to constrain religious freedoms, like not letting certain religious people into countries, it it will then impact economic growth negatively. Is that is that the point, Paul? Well, Dr. Paul Godfrey. I think, uh, um, Matt, that's that's right in the long run. I mean, certainly if the Donald's proposal were adopted somehow uh, in the next three to five months, we wouldn't see uh, economic Nothing, decline. Right. But the long-term the long-term data indicates that countries that maintain religious diversity by encoding religious freedom in core documents, laws, and policies do better economically hmm. over the long run than countries that don't. But you distinguish between countries that are, are highly religious. That's not what this means. You're saying countries that are religious and, and, and basically indoctrinate religious freedom and put it into their, their records, their right. constitution – and, and allow religious freedom, they're more likely to thrive economically. Right. So, Brian, a lot of his uh, initial research was about documenting. So, Brian is the world's expert on religious freedom because he's created a number of scales where he'll look at countries and he can measure them on sort of how encoded it is in, in documents like constitutions, um, operating policies that provide religious freedom and protections for different Mm. beliefs, but also he looks at sectarian violence. So what's the level of religious violence that's going on in countries? And his data is pretty unequivocal that countries that score high on religious freedom, um, preserving religious diversity within a country, do better economically. They create a more welcoming and inviting uh, environment for business. They create a more stable operating Mm. environment where businesses are willing to invest, where multiple products can be sold, products and services without restriction. And so the the long-run data is is pretty clear that religious freedom is is an important component to um, business success. It's funny because we might make it about, you know, we've got to teach democracy. We've got to teach um, 
we've got to have a market economy, so teach capitalism. But maybe preceding all of that should just be an openness to freedom of religion. Yeah. I mean, if that's a foundation, then you're already open right. to probably other factors. Well, and, and, you know, in the, in the United States, we don't call it the First Amendment for nothing. Right. I mean, when, when the Constitution was formed and people were concerned about certain rights and privileges being protected, being encoded in law, what was one of the first ones that they, they came up with? It's the freedom to express yourself mm-hmm. and the freedom of conscience, the freedom to believe as you want to believe um, should be enshrined as a founding principle of a democratic government. Because if you're going to have democracy, yeah. what you want is diversity of ideas. Um, if you're going to have totalitarianism or demagoguery, what you want is few ideas. Interesting. Because it would seem like, not to support the Don or anything, but maybe it would be a better comment to say, we're not going to let anyone in that has been to Syria. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would probably be a better statement than I'm not going to let someone in that has a religious belief. Right. Well, Holy cow. And so when, when we start talking about um, cutting at the joints about whose beliefs are correct and whose beliefs right. should we honor um, – Part of the beauty of the American and British and Western experiment is to say, look, we will allow everyone to believe what they want to believe without persecution. And the result of that is that people have to come together in marketplaces. Mm -hmm. So marketplaces for economic goods, marketplaces for cultural goods. For ideas, I guess. For ideas and marketplaces in the the religious systems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if if I want to believe, and I I think as an LDS person, this is core to what we believe, is, you know, we're we're certainly not trying to enforce uh, a rigid belief system on anybody in the world, but we're saying for those who are seeking after what we believe is the truth, we claim the right to preach that to them. Yeah, and we, to let the ideas battle. To let the ideas battle and let people choose. You know, I just love the wording of the LDS 11th article of faith. You know, we claim the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience, and we allow all other men the same mm-hmm, privilege. Exactly. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. That's, that's religious freedom enshrined in not only a government document, but a religion's document, a religion's core founding principles that everybody has a right to believe what they want. So in a weird way, I guess, religious freedom then is pro-business. Religious freedom is pro-marketplace, pro-sharing of ideas and and products. And and it's pro-creativity. Yeah, pro-creativity. And it's pro-innovation and all the kinds of things, but it's also pro-stability. Yeah. You see, because it's hard for me to want to invest in a country where um, it's not my, the, the value of my products and services that determine That's my worth true. in the society, but what I believe. That's true. And Your so faith. because what happens, and we know this from the English experiment in the, in the 17th century, um, Mary, Queen of Scots, was a Catholic and systematically persecuted the Protestants. Um, after she was done, I think it was James the first. They started persecuting Catholics. Everybody. And so imagine, yeah. imagine the instability being, of the market. Yeah, and imagine being a uh, a company wanting to make a significant investment. I mean, I don't know what that would look like in the seventeenth yeah. right. century, but imagine in the twenty first century where you're talking about building a two or three uh, billion dollar software or or uh, uh, computer hardware fabrication facility. Right. 
And you're going to make that kind of investment in a country where the, the whims of the government about what people believe is going to dictate policy. Unbelievable. You know, well, I mean, imagine no. you'd have to keep changing your goods just based on the wind direction change oh, yeah. of the Yeah, and, and the risk of nationalization of those assets. So, That's true. So the lack of religious diversity – um, well, so one, it creates that sort of whipsaw effect where there's no stability, but also the lack of religious diversity in countries tends to spawn sectarian violence. So yeah. if I'm in the minority, I have no way to express myself other than picking up a gun and trying to enforce my belief system by the, by the, you know, by the power of a gun. It's unbelievable because it not only goes – what Trump's doing not only goes against everything we – espouse and believe and First Amendment and – but it also goes against strong, smart business practice. I mean yeah. I, I had no idea that China has such a large Muslim population. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Yeah. And yet they're a huge trading partner and – right. I mean so if it starts there and I mean terrorism I guess can be in Indonesia. It can be everywhere now. Mali, it's right. in Africa. It's – eventually you're going to – with such beliefs, you're going to eventually start impacting. Well, you and 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 what you don't want to do for a, for a, a robust economy and for a good business environment is you don't want to sort your customers based on <laughs> yeah. who believes what. Right. Um, you know, that's, this is the Catholic product. This, this is, is a, the Muslim product. Well, and there there are opportunities for halal sure. food or for kosher food. But what that's doing is that's not saying we're going to discriminate against you because yeah. of your belief, but it's we're going to reach out to and you and understand your beliefs and support you and understand you. your belief and support you and accommodate you in our mm-hmm. in our business, um, which is exactly the opposite of what things like the Donald is yeah. proposing. You know, if you think about the implications, it's almost fear versus abundant, right? It's like oh. I see I see this as an opportunity. Not a moment to be fearful, an opportunity That's to right. understand. And so Brian's latest research, you know, what, what uh, I think what a lot of people would believe is, well, the, the way to have a peaceful, successful, stable world is to, to have the rise of secularism, to mm-hmm. stop people from believing in anything. Yeah. And, you know, that's that seems a, like the other extreme. Well, and, and Brian's data completely demographic is he shows, look, the people who hold those beliefs are in countries that are below population replacement rate where oh. secularism has taken hold and these are countries that are not growing. France. France. Germany. Uh, Germany. Uh, even many, many parts of the United States are below replacement population. Interesting. And so what Brian is saying is, look um, this isn't an ideological battle. This is a demographic battle. And the reality is if you look at the places around the world that are growing, those are places where people have deep, enduring religious commitments. Uh, India. India, sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, Indonesia. Um, Indonesia, Latin America. Uh-huh. Um, I think in the United States, the, the, some of the data that I've read, you know, that, that people of uh, Latin American descent and Hispanics tend to be uh, – have a higher birth rate. Mm-hmm. Um, they also tend to be more religiously That's committed. That's interesting. So the religious, the religious belief set also promotes sustainable growth of yeah. families, of populations. That's right. That's so the right. secular countries – aren't repopulating. Yeah. So they're 
they're dying off. And so if you look at I, – I mean I was an LDS missionary in Germany. Yeah. And so – By the way, uh, so was Ben Wasden. Okay. You guys can talk later. All right. Hey, Ben, <laughs> great. Uh, so so in Germany, to, to make up for the declining German population, they are admitting foreign workers who are coming from Turkey, who mm-hmm. are coming from Africa, who have very deep religious beliefs. And so you know, these are the people who are filling the gap economically – uh, and providing the labor force. Yeah. So, by the way, China. We just we're speaking with a woman Friday about China's changing of their child policy yeah. from one to two. It's purely, basically economic. They need yeah. to pull their country out. And if you if you want to think about religious freedom, what what Brian will tell you is in China is it's difficult to compare China with the rest of the world. Right. What you have to think about is where is China today versus where China was a decade ago or mm. two decades ago, and there you see progress along along <sighs> religious freedom metrics. Interesting stuff. We're speaking with Dr. Paul Godfrey from uh, the Marriott School of Management here at Brigham Young University about the very impact of religious diversity and economic growth. You can't you can't try to basically justify not allowing religious diversity and still saying we want long-term economic growth. So the Trumpsters out in left field as, you know, as we've already stated a million times. But uh, we're learning. We're learning from Dr. Paul Godfrey about why, why religious diversity is so important worldwide. We'll come back, continue the discussion, give you some more uh, incredible statistics about where the growth and the population growth is going to be going and the economic growth. It doesn't necessarily always bode well for the United States if we're not careful. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. To the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is Dr. Paul Godfrey. Uh, he's the author of More Than Money, the five t- types of capital that create wealth and eliminate poverty. He's a professor here at Brigham Young University. He serves as the William and Rossil uh, Lowe Professor of Business Strategy in the Marriott School of Management at Brigham Young University. And uh, he's he was uh, cited in some articles that we read by a, a, a white paper that was written by two researchers, Brian Grimm, Philip Connor. The name of the research, or the article is the new survey, uh, the, or uh, the survey was called, um, where is it? It's the Changing Religion, Changing Economies, Future Global Religious and Economic Growth. And uh, Paul was cited just in some other articles about this incredible research, but you're—I think you're—you're—you're you're, you're making our point of life. I mean, this is huge, Paul, because it's not religion's not just—it's not just a sideshow, a sideshow, and it's not just something that makes us feel good. It mm-hmm. becomes almost a catalyst for open-mindedness, for mm-hmm. sharing, for charity, right. for for beneficence and goodness towards. Other people, right. which then seems to grease the skids of the economy. Well, and there's another aspect of religious freedom and yeah. religious belief that's important, and that's integrity. 
So uh, my colleague at Harvard Business School, Clayton Christensen, yeah, Clayton. tells a story about um, they had a Chinese scholar at uh, Harvard for a while. And at the end of the year, this scholar had talked to Clayton and he said, Clayton, you have no idea how good you have it in America. And Clayton said, tell me what you mean. Wow. And he goes, well, so in my country, which is very secular, very atheist, um, there is no sense that if I am immoral, there's a God looking over my shoulder and so I better do what's right. Interesting. So you can do whatever you need. So you can do whatever situational you need. Situational so ethics. You do situational ethics. You can take advantage of whoever you need to. He said one of the beauties of the American system is that because people believe in God, there's somebody looking over their shoulder hmm. that helps them make the right choice. Yeah. And so people, you know, his argument was that religious religiosity leads to higher levels of integrity. But when you couple high religiosity with religious freedom, Mm. the ability to believe as you desire to believe, then you can match integrity with commitment and courage. Right. And think about what it takes to build a successful business. Yeah. Integrity, commitment, and courage. Oh, my heavens. And and it seems like, I guess, that sure it brings up diversity of opinion and it brings up arguments like we're having in the country right now Mm -hmm. about letting Muslims in. Right. But – if we if we continue to remember religious diversity and your own religiosity right. and your own religious beliefs, we can get through this. And in the end, we ensure a stronger, right, a stronger country. And we have a stronger country and a stronger economy. economy. Uh, an economy that's more inclusive, mm-hmm. that will be more creative, more innovative. Um, part of what's driving American economic success is innovation. Um, yeah. And where does innovation come from? The inspiration. Uh, innovation and inspiration. So you look at innovation, where's the most innovative place in the United States? It's the San Francisco Bay Area. What is one of the most diverse yeah, group communities areas ever. in terms of belief? Yeah. It's yeah. the San Francisco Bay Area. That's right. Um, there's, the correlation should not be lost on people, that when you allow people – a diversity of belief and you enshrine that in law and you protect that, um, boom, boom, creativity. People are more creative. They're more diverse. They create new products and services. They find ways to value and, everybody. And you don't have to – and it doesn't, it doesn't have to be violence. So you don't have to pressure idea with violence and no. aggression. You pressure idea by making a better idea. That's right because you're in a marketplace. That's right. And violence is the opposite of a marketplace where people don't get to choose. It's forced upon them. Interesting. Yeah. So because our tendency you would think and you even see it in the United States that we might be becoming more secular where we're more, let's not talk about religion. Let's keep religion out of this. Let's maybe not even tolerate religion um, or religious views. And there's been a lot of discussion about that during the summer. But the problem with secularism is we eventually don't believe. You also don't even believe you need to have families necessarily. Mm -hmm. So then we're not reproducing. We're not we're not even sustaining our own country, right. our right. own ideals, our own belief system. Right. And so you can look at uh, at the rise of secularism around the world and the decline in birth rates and, and a logic that says, well, the planet is overpopulated and we need to control population um, versus a, an abundance logic, yeah. versus a logic similar to what many Latter-day Saints would believe, that the earth is full and enough to spare. That's not only in the Doctrine and Covenants, that's in the Psalms and the Old Testament. Right, it's, it's in the Scripture. It's in the Scripture. By the way, it's probably in the Quran. And it's, it's probably, probably in the, in the Talmud. Quran. It's somewhere, and, right. 
right. and and other pl- and other documents that I haven't read, but this this idea that people have a larger purpose, mm-hmm. um, and that means having families. That means because um, when when populations don't reproduce, economies can't grow. Yeah, and the other thing is, um, well, your ideas then can't sustain they won't be sustained they yeah. can't then be fought in the world of ideas right in the marketplace of ideas yeah. and uh, and and the problem with smaller populations of course is you get this inversion where you have a very small number of young people supporting a very large number of old people mm-hmm. um, that's not real conducive to business and economic growth either no, that was china's big problem china and italy is having that problem and so businesses there are taxed um, within an inch of their life, who wants to innovate, who wants to create, who wants to start a business when we're going to be facing those kinds of taxation and low growth uh, modalities. Um, Isn't that – but we sit there and you hear – I don't know who you hear saying it, but whatever, the elite, whatever. Oh, you don't need God. Mm-hmm. You don't need these ideas. Just yeah. – it's more logical than all of this. But – Meanwhile, uh, well, it's not only more logical, but it's all about me. It's, it's true, you know. And and so at the end of the day, if there's no God, if there's no diversity of ideas, it's all about me and whatever I want. Um, and again, that's hard to build a business. Believe it or not, this is sort of Adam Smith. Yeah, know? yeah. Um, sort of, if people were thinking about themselves, which motivated them to sell to other people. Um, but for Adam Smith, the the much higher calling was people who cared about other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, religious religiosity promotes charity, but so does religious freedom. That's right. That's right. And yeah. so, yeah, we don't need zealousness. We need freedom first, right. which is open mind. It creates open minded right. religious, you know, and, and true tolerance. True, true tolerance. True tolerance, which says, if you don't believe, I accept your right to not believe, but you accept and honor my right to believe. Yeah. Um, when that happens inside the boundaries of a firm, that's a pretty powerful incentive for people to, to it, produce and grow. It seems like the whole uh, – in the summer, the whole um, uh, gay marriage, same-sex marriage debate, it, it, it seemed pretty polarized and destructive except it also seemed like a powerful opportunity to, to basically model that tolerance right. both ways. Right. So religious organizations could still model just, you know, the, the – the, the love and the respect for other beliefs that they don't believe in, right. and and the lesbian, gay, bi, transgender world could still respect that religions have the right to believe what and, they believe. And so again, you know, if you and I know this is BYU radio, but yeah. if you come back to that eleventh article of faith, um, if if we can get to the point where everybody says, "Wow, you can believe," and 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 I will defend to the death, yeah. Your right to believe what you want to believe, because yeah. I know you will defend to the death my right to believe right. what I want to believe. See, you've you've hit. It seems like that's the gist. Is it's one thing for me to defend my religion; mm-hmm. it's another thing to defend religious rights. And that's if I defend right. my religion at the expense of religious right, then we're done. We're done. It's it's game over because then we're headed to totalitarianism, it, huh? yeah. some sort of theocratic, uh, you know, monolithic theocracy, um, and that's not where individuals thrive. That's not mm. where economies thrive, and it, it really is. It's the it's the defense of religious freedom mm-hmm. that matters so much because then I can my own faith can flourish. And it seems like the minute we have that impasse where. 
one's religious views fight another's religious views and we pull out and we don't allow the freedom per se, mm-hmm. then secularism fills the gap. Yeah. And then all of a sudden right. you're the exact opposite of what you were trying to create. Now you've right. created something that has no religious value, well, no religious and, but, freedom. But, but secularism is its own value set. It is. It's, it is. It's because its own. It, implicit in secularism is the notion that if you're a believer, you're somehow second class intellectually. <clears throat> right. Excuse me. Yeah, you need to be a, a lower you know, strata. And, and we, need to, we need to be careful for you. And so in some ways, uh, coming back to the Donald, yeah. um, it's the march of secularism. Let's start – let's make the litmus test of whether somebody's a good person, what they believe. Oh, um, yeah. What, what we ought to say is all are children of God. All are all, all, all have are equal. All have Independent value. Independent of each other, yeah. And what matters is that we defend each other's right to believe and live as they believe and live. Mm. That's powerful for society, for political structures, but it's also wonderful for business. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's, it's your future, Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, your rights—the the right of religious freedom—is your future. Yeah. You econ- you economically won't make it long term. Right. Without it. That's right. You're going to sell. I mean, that's what's interesting. Yeah. France in the in 2050, Fran- France and Germany won't be world powers. Mm-hmm. They won't be economic right. world powers. Well, or or more more accurately, um, people of historic French and 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 ethnic German descent. Won't be world powers even in their own country. Well, that's true because now they're they're even importing. They have to import people to get the economy people. to work. And and see the the whole the whole French thing um, and and the German thing. You know they've they've brought these people in as workers, but they've never fully integrated them into their societies. They've never accepted their right to be different. Hmm. Right. Uh, and and embrace that. And this is where the American experiment is so much different because you come here and all of a sudden you're an American. Yeah. Um, and you might be a Muslim American. You might be a Mormon American. Right. But the, you're an key, American. the key word is you're an American. Well, unless the Donster survives, yeah. then you well, are a Muslim. Right. And, 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 you know, but but unfortunately, history teaches us that divisiveness and and putting emphasis on the adjective Muslim yeah. or Mormon right. versus the noun American always is more popular yeah. in the short run but more destructive in the long run. That's right. Oh, man. You're good, Paul. Well, See what you, you get for reading books? <laughs> Great to have you. This is a, Thanks, we have Matt. to have you back because this is just the beginning. This is the tip of the iceberg of what you study. Sure. Let's do it, man. We'll have you back. Paul Godfrey, right. Dr. Paul Godfrey. Uh, I'm telling you, folks, it's not just about religion. Right, religious freedom—the freedom, the right—it matters, folks, and it will. Uh, it, it'll, you'll pay one way or another. Uh, we all are going to pay. Stick with us. We'll come right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, our founding fathers, they, they, I guess they were just really lucky, right? They just happened to nail the fact that uh, we need, you know, freedom of religion. That was just a lucky 
you know, need. They needed it, right? They they were running and needed freedom of religion, but they also made sure it was top, top of the list, right? So um, why I think this is so important is we have a candidate that throws out an idea, which I truly don't even believe he believes in. I think he's just posturing, Donald Trump is, you know, to get the press, and he's got it. And he will now be able to ride this wave, I believe, to Christmas. Uh, a lot of people beat him up, but I think in the end you'll see he'll also – it'll resonate with a lot of fear of a lot of people. The problem is we uh, have to either live our values or not. And if we believe in religious freedom, it, it, there's a lot of that that was feeling – people that were feeling that was being tested with the the same-sex marriage thing. And no matter what you believe religiously in same-sex marriage, there is a right and a freedom for people to believe what they want to believe and to have their conscience and to be able to exercise that. And when everybody can exercise their conscience, we can – that's the freedom of religion, the freedom of belief. And apparently, according to Paul Godfrey and other experts, it's the core, it's the key to long-term success and sustainability. Secularism won't be. Uh, Europe is struggling because they're not they're not necessarily supporting their own population growth. And if you're not supporting your own population growth, your own country's growth uh, by populating, then you aren't going to be able to sustain your belief systems, your set of beliefs. And we all need to just get real about religion and religious freedom and not just jump and follow the idea of one person saying we need to just exclude a religion. Secularism. Crazy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt us, folks. It's going to hurt us. And that doesn't mean you got to be an extremist either. You can be just a God-fearing, loving human being. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. Hey, hey. It's Tuesday. I'm so happy. Apparently. I like it when Hey hey. I like it when it's not Monday, but it's Tuesday and we're already an hour into the show. Last hour, awesome guest. Dr. Paul Godfrey. Man, we learned a lot about religion and economic strength. You need religious diversity, you need religious freedom if you want to grow economically. It's got to happen. So Donald, careful. Not only you know, does it sound bigoted, racist, whatever? But it's also, and I know you're, you think you're doing it for protecting and for protection, but be careful. Religious freedom must reign true. Mm. It's pretty much what everyone has said in response to him. Yeah, that's is why. That again, we, this is part of our country. It's part of our history. We just can't. I don't think he believes change. it. He's 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 positioning. This is just politics. So let's not even give him any more airtime. It's brownie day for crying out loud. Celebrate. I am the healthiest human oh, ever known to man. You'll never live that down. 
It's a great line. It is. It's totally true. Do you like your brownie uh, a la mode? I like my brownie in my mouth. Or just a brownie. I like, I like brownies. I like brownies mode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I like it a la mode. I like brownies any way you give me a brownie. Okay. I know people, there's some purists. What? Just want a brownie. They don't want any no. chocolate drizzle. They uh, don't want ice cream. They mm, don't want. They caramel. just want the brownie. Have you ever had a brownie with caramel in it? Yeah. Like so good. A hot brownie with a scoop of vanilla ice cream next to it, and you like mix it together. Uh, yeah, there's some people that don't like that. They're purist. Just the brownie. Let's just think about that for a second. Should we put some music on? Yeah, put some music on. Great. This is when we put the show on hold. By the way, you need to make that in ice cream. Brownies and ice yeah, cream? Yeah, I tried. Then made me some ice cream that was called, if mama ain't happy, people are going to die ice cream. Yeah. It's really good. But it had chocolate chips, raspberries, and pecans. Hmm. And every flavor, bam, bam, bam. It gave me a headache. Not even like a freezer headache. It just gave me a headache. Anyway, that's our food update. That was really good. Make a brownie, caramel brownie, like a dulce de leche brownie mix. What's dulce de leche? Dulce. That wasn't even close, Not but good even job. Close. <laughs> dulce de leche is like caramel. In fact, you may have said something horrible there. Yeah. We, we apologize for anything that Ben We apologize just said. for pregnant women that he just offended. I... I just figure after all the things you say about German, that was Now, German warranted. is like the fourth best language in the world. Yeah, we need to be careful about language. I know. We don't want to say something in another language that could get us in trouble. Like that, like what you just What's said. What's that? Dulce de leche is caramel, basically. Okay. But so it's you better than caramel. caramel. No, but it's better than caramel, really. Yeah. It's but, different. But it's, but it's caramel. So It's better. So do a little dulce de leche ice I'll put cream. put some caramel in it. But okay. then you put brownie and you fold brownie into it. That's the next ice cream you should make me. Okay. Bring caramel, it brownie. <laughs> Ice cream. And bring, and bring it Requests. tomorrow. Bring it tomorrow morning. You just request flavors yeah, and get I do. them the next day? Right. It's really good. Hey, um, today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Barry Schwartz. Here's the question of the day. If, if I asked you why you work, what would your answer be, Terrell? I've done the opposite. You, you know what it's like not to work. I stayed home because, I mean, yeah. if you're not working, I don't know what else I'm going to do. Yeah. So if your boy says, Daddy, why do you work? What would you say? Uh, your mom makes me. Yeah, well. Your mom makes me work. It comes down, I mean, if he was older, there'd be a deeper discussion. But, you know, basically, I'd like to eat. Daddy wants to eat. Daddy, Daddy wants needs to money eat. to eat. What would you say, Ben, to your child? I don't have a child. When you have one. In 20 years. Yeah. Slow down on the reproduction there. But go ahead. What What will you say to your child? To suppo- Daddy, why do you work? To support you. So you notice both of you go to the financial reason for working. Yeah. Our guest today, Dr. Barry Schwartz, we'll have him on in just a minute, is going to talk about, um, you know, there's you might want to know your reason for working because it might impact how you work, right? So if it's about finances, then it might feel differently than if it's about purpose or mission or – One of the greatest things though is when I my, – I, this of course happened years ago, but when direct deposit happened. Mm-hmm. And I didn't oh, yeah. see the check. I like that. Mm-hmm. Then you just you show up, yeah. you do your job. Right. The money just shows up. Right. Because I can't do math, 
our our, yeah. our division of labor right. at my home, my wife takes care of the money so that we don't go bankrupt because I can't carry a she's, four. She's got great math skills. Right. And, and I come to work because I find it fulfilling. See, that's it. See, that changes it, why we work. And there's part of us. Our, we have a human nature, right? And part of it is – some of our human nature, I guess we need to take care of our needs, but some of it is that we want to fulfill ourselves. We want to transcend our life and do something bigger. So uh, Dr. Barry Schwartz, who, by the way, is the author of the book Why We Work, is going to be joining us from Pennsylvania in a few minutes and help us figure out maybe how to kind of align our work to our value system a little differently. Anyway, we'll be getting into that in just a few moments. But before we do that, let's get to the headlines with Terry South, find out what's going on around the world. Terry? I know we just said we're not going to talk anymore about Trump, but Donald Trump clarified his comments this morning. Oh, he did? Oh, so he didn't mean it exactly as he said it. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. Appearing on various talk shows this morning, Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump rejected criticism of his proposal to ban all Muslim immigration to the United States. Here was part of Trump's statement that he read at a rally on Monday. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Until we are able to determine and understand this problem and the dangers threat it poses. While discussing the matter on MSNBC's Morning Joe, the real estate mogul compared his plan to the wartime response of Franklin D. Roosevelt following the U.S. entry into World War II. He said it's not unconstitutional keeping people out, frankly, until we get a hold of what's going on, he said, citing FDR's proclamations, which declared Italian, German, and Japanese nationals to be enemy aliens. He said he had to do it, Trump said approvingly. We were at war with radical Islam. Asked whether he'd like to follow in FDR's footsteps and propose internment camps, Trump distanced himself, saying, not at all. I'm not proposing camps. We're not talking about Japanese internment camps. None of those were religions. Those were all countries. Right. So again, anybody that's been to Syria, don't let them in, if that's what you want to do. But don't make it about a religion. That's the difference. Man! Sorry. He also yesterday said that he suggested that the U.S. should consider closing up the Internet in order to curb the spread of extremists online. Speaking at a campaign rally in South Carolina, Trump called anyone who would criticize his plan because of freedom of speech is foolish. The real estate mogul suggested visiting Bill Gates to better understand the Internet. We're losing a lot of people because of the Internet. He said we have to see Bill Gates and a lot of different people that really understand what's happening, we have to talk about them, maybe in certain areas, closing that internet up in some ways. I think that's where his brain just switched gears somewhere. He went into the internet. Like, because this is a world issue and you can get it on the internet. Right. It's, and the internet is, you can't just close it up. Right. And Bill Gates doesn't really run Microsoft anymore. Right. He's doing his foundation Again, work. Again, I just, this is, he, so, he, just, he just wants time. He wants airtime. <laughs> He doesn't believe any of this. So he's like, just turn off the he's internet. He's making millions of dollars in Dubai. <laughs> he, he loves Muslims as long as they'll bring money and this is going to get him ratings right now. In other news, a new Monmouth University poll released Monday showed Ted Cruz in first place in Iowa for the first time. He nabbed 24% of likely caucus voters over Donald Trump's 19%. This is why Ted Cruz didn't want to say anything. One of the leaders in Iowa, Ben Carson, had only 13% in this poll, a massive 19-point drop from late October. Marco Rubio finished third at 17 percent. Interesting. The Supreme Court on Monday declined to review city and state-level prohibitions on semi-automatic high-capacity assault weapons. Seven states have a ban on such weapons, and Justice Antonin Scalia and 
uh, Clarence Thomas have openly stated such laws flop the Second Amendment. Despite this, the court opted not to take up the lower court decisions, effectively allowing the restrictions to exist. Hmm. So they're not going to change those rules that those uh, cities and states have uh, have made. Um, and then finally, this is interesting. This is happening in um, Southern California. Two months after being fired from the University of Southern California for appearing intoxicated during a game, ex-football coach Steve Sarkeesian has yeah. filed a wrongful termination lawsuit against the school. Sarkeesian asked for $30 million in exchange for the university firing him over his alcoholism disability. $30 million? $30 million. Because he was, he was kicked out of a contract like worth $12.5 million or whatever. Yes. And then there's so the rest are just damages. damages. Yeah. But he's calling it alcoholism disability. His lawyer says firing somebody because of that disability is against the law. Yeah, you can't fire me because I have this disability. Is alcoholism a disability? Well, it's a disease. Yes. Hmm. Is it a disability? Well, it's interesting if this will if this will. I mean, it'd be like firing someone because they have cancer. Is this, is this new? Is this new ground they're trying to, to well, forge, calling it a disability, or is it classified in some areas as a disability instead of just a disease? No, I think it is. I think it is a disease. I mean, a, dis- well, a disease is a disability. You're okay. disabled by your disease, like diabetes. Okay, would disable you. Might, might make it harder for you to do certain things. But and she'd have to make some. You'd have to help some way. Except I'm a, I'm betting that. There's other reasons they fired him, which wouldn't have been necessarily because of his disease per se, but maybe because – They were careful. They fired him because they gave him a set of rules he needed to follow mm-hmm. because he had had some other instances. Yeah. So here's some rules you need to follow. He didn't follow the rules. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's a so that's, that's That's how they tried to, I guess, frame his firing. Well, and his was so public. I and mean, it's a public firing. He was under yeah. major duress. Like he's got his disease, but he also was going through divorce and he was – Ruining the boosters of USC were mad at him. And so, I don't know. We'll see how this goes. This is interesting. I mean, I thought he would just, you know, I, you thought this would all go quietly away. No. But a di- a dis- is alcoholism a disability? Oh, I, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Now, it, now a court has to figure that out. Yeah, now time. they've got to. I mean, if it's a disease, it can disable you. Huh. Interesting stuff. We will take a break. Uh, When we come back, we will be speaking with Dr. Barry Schwartz about why we work. He wrote the book on that subject. He's also going to be talking about uh, how we can try to, you know, understand maybe why we work and the motivation for why we work and see if that doesn't change how we work. It's interesting stuff, folks. Stick with us. Helping you lead healthier, happier lives. That's one of the goals of the show. And uh, we can't do it if you're not here. So stick with us. We'll be right back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody. You work it, Dolly. Oh, man, this was a great song back in the day. Like 50 years ago? Pardon? 50 years ago, right? Come again? Don't be rude, man. I'm I'm just trying to gain knowledge. Yeah. Not 50, 40. 40 years ago. Now, what was it? Probably 30 years ago. 38 years ago. Working 9 to 5, folks. Why do you work? 
So if somebody came up, put a microphone in front of your face, why do you work? What would your answer be? Because, you know, I have to. I have to work. Well, uh, working nine to five. There's a song, if you remember, um, in Footloose, the song said, I've been working so hard, I'm punching my card eight hours for what? Uh, Now tell me what I got. That feeling of frustration, that lack of fulfillment from work can sometimes be our everyday experience. Today's guest, Dr. Barry Schwartz, is the author of Why We Work. In his book, he talks about how we view work and why it's wrong. He joins us now live from Pennsylvania. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi. Pleasure to be with you. Great to have you on. And to me, this is such a big, big issue. Uh, Just because of the latest research, I think it was the Pew Organization came out, or the Gallup came out, 90% of workers are either unengaged or actively disengaged from their jobs. 90% of us aren't engaged in our jobs. What is that all about, Dr. Schwartz? Well, you know, I think what it's about is that we have all come to accept uh, as a kind of the official story that the only reason people work is for a paycheck. Yeah. And as long as that's true, it really doesn't matter what you're asked to do. If you're paid and you're paid adequately, you know, the work doesn't need to be interesting, challenging, stimulating, varied. You don't need to be in charge of what you do. It's all about the paycheck. And the result is that we've created workplaces that are kind of like that. Mm. Uh, and it's just, obviously it's true of assembly lines, blue collar, but it's also increasingly true of, uh, of pink collar and white collar. That's oh, true. Uh, so our... Uh, but but it, unfortunately, it's a false picture. Yeah, yeah. And people but, care about what they do. They want to feel... Engaged. Engaged. They want to feel like they're making a contribution to something. They want to feel like they're learning. They want to get respect from their colleagues and their supervisors. And all of that is largely just ignored by people who run organizations. So it, it's interesting because the premise is however we're thinking about it, really will determine how we go about doing it, right? So Not if, if, quite. Okay, teach me. Just how we think about it. How we think about it, how you think about it as the person who runs an organization is going to affect how you structure the organization. Mm-hmm. And then I come in, get a job in your organization, and I, I look around and say, what's available to me? Can I be in charge of my work? No. Nope. Sorry. Follow the script. Can I grow? No, nope, I'm doing the same thing day after day. <laughs> right. All I got, the only thing I can aspire to is a paycheck. Uh. So I don't think it's just about if you come into work with a bad attitude, right. you, it, the work becomes bad. Um, you can come to work with a good attitude and still have it squashed by yeah. a bad workplace structure. Well, and then, and then it might even be that my workplace structure keeps perpetuating that belief system that it's just to get a check. Look, well, don't think. I absolutely believe. Yeah. I think over time, um, what's happened is that our aspirations for what to get, what we'll get out of work, have just kept going down because we've all sw- sort of drunk the Kool Aid about what work is. Hmm. Now, I want to say that my experience teaching college students, I have some optimism because I think that the millennials won't tolerate work. That is nothing but a paycheck. Yeah. They want more. They want purpose. They want, they want to work for organizations that are doing some good. They want to be challenged. They want to, they want to be in charge of what they do. 
And now, you know, as they get older and they get married and they have mortgages to pay and kids to support, they may become just like their parents. Uh, let's hope but not. at least at the moment, I think they are not that way. And if you want to hire talented people, you're going to have to give them work to do that's worth doing. Talk about um, the nature of this. It, it, some would assume the nature of man is just not to work. Like even I think in the Bible somewhere, it's like, they were forced to work. Adam was had to work. It was by the sweat of your brow you had to learn this stuff. Is is that our nature to not want to work? Well, I think that's not our nature. Uh, the the father of uh, modern economics, Adam Smith, in his in his classic book, which he wrote uh, the same year as the Declaration of Independence, he assumed that he said people are basically lazy and uh, the only way to get them to do anything is to make it worth their while mm. which meant paying them right and that sort of set in motion this notion that what the work is doesn't matter because it, you couldn't make work that people would be eager to do so make it efficient make it mechanical make it so that people are interchangeable parts and as long as you pay them they'll show up so i think it started then um and which is not to say that people had had it easy prior to the Industrial Revolution. I mean, working on a farm, a subsistence farm, was oh. brutally hard work, but it didn't have the same character as working in a factory. What you did from day to day varied. You had to use your ingenuity. You know, problems arose. You had to come up with solutions to those problems. And your work was integrated into the rest of your life. The factory eliminated all of that. And, um, and over the years, it got more and more routinized. The work hmm. got more and more routinized. Henry Ford, uh, you know, uh, is, we have this sort of iconic image of the assembly line where you can basically learn your job in five minutes. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, so if you go down, the next guy can come right in and do you it. go down, the next guy comes right in. Exactly. You don't want to waste. You know, we talk nowadays about, quote, human capital, right. the amount of effort, time, money we invest in training people. Well, you don't want to be in a situation like that, because then your workers hold you hostage, right? You put in a year training me, and now unless you satisfy my demands, I'm going to leave. Yeah. How much better is it to put five minutes into training you? Now you threaten to leave, and I'll say goodbye. Yeah, right. See ya. See ya. But this so, and this doesn't – so that's interesting because the factory, the industrial kind of revolution isn't jiving anymore with the, with the um, information age. I think that's right, but, you know, the, the, the strange thing is that it, even within the industrial setting, this is the wrong model. There was a, there was a remarkable natural experiment that was done uh, 30 years ago. Toyota took over a General Motors uh, plant in California mm. that was the worst performing automobile plant in the world. <laughs> Just awful. No quality control, terrible productivity, uh, labor and management fighting with each other continuously, a disaster. They took it over because they wanted to have a foothold in the American market. Right. And they, and they did it in partnership with GM. And they introduced Toyota-style manufacturing to this plant. But here's the interesting thing. They didn't change the workforce. Same workers. Wow. Different system. What happened? It became the most productive plant in the GM system Unbelievable. in a matter of two years. But what was the difference? What's the Japanese well, manufacturing model? one striking example. In the American um, system, you do your, and I don't think this is true anymore. I think American manufacturing has basically been shamed 
and competed into more enlightenment mm-hmm. by the competition from Japan and Korea. But back in the day, you know, you do your job on the line. You see that somebody has installed the wrong part. Do you stop the line? Do you correct the mistake? No. You do your thing. Yeah. And then when the car gets to the end of the line, there's a whole bunch of people who are there to fix all the mistakes. Yeah. Of which there, of which there are many, which often means taking everything yeah. apart. That so could have been fixed earlier. Exactly. Yeah. In Japan, everybody's got a pull cord. Mm-hmm. You can you see something wrong, you can stop the line by pulling the cord. No, I've seen that at the at Marysville Honda manufacturing plant, engine manufacturing plant. Anyone can stop the whole plant. And, and when and but when it stops, it's like $10,000 a minute. Like that plant has to keep going, but any employee can stop it. Stop. And what that means is that all of a sudden your job is not just to, you know, have tunnel vision and tighten the bolts that you're supposed to tighten. Yeah. But basically, you are a representative of management, you and everyone else, and you're looking at the whole thing. Interesting. And you have the authority to use your judgment and say, this, we have to stop it. That, I think, so what happens, well, I think that what that shows us is that there's an enormous amount of respect yeah. that the management has for the workforce. They and- also put in much more time, uh, many more hours training. Than the, than the General Motors yeah. people did. And there's so, accountability, right? So, I mean, if that if that line is stopped, they're going to come talk to you. They're going to find out what's going on. and exactly. But they trust you and respect you enough, and you'll be accountable. Exactly so. That's powerful. Even, even the sort of stereotypical, routinized assembly line, when you, when you treat people with respect and challenge them to know their work and to feel pride in what they do, they do better work. Yeah. And I think the, the lesson almost across the board, if you want to know what companies are most successful, look at the Fortune or Forbes uh, 100 best places to work. Chances are pretty good that if, you ha- uh, uh, if you're a company that people want to work for, you're a profitable company. Yeah. Because people show up for work every day wanting to be there. They work faster. They work smarter. Uh, customers are more satisfied, and the result is that the company is more profitable. Mm, fascinating stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Barry Schwartz. He, uh, he is the, the Dorwin Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social, uh, I guess, uh, and Sociology, I guess. It's Swar- social Action. It's social a, Action. It's a mouthful. Yeah, that is a mouthful. At uh, Swarthmore College, he's also the author of the book, Why We Work, The Paradox of Choice, The Costs of Living, Learning and Memory, a bunch of books, uh, TED Talks, he's done it all. Dr. Barry Schwartz will be back continuing this discussion about why we work and how we might re-engage in our own work. Um, Fascinating stuff. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us, folks. To the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, today we are talking about why we work, and who better to do that than the author of the book Why We Work, Dr. Barry Schwartz, and uh, he is—he's teaching us really that if you want to be engaged, at some point you gotta—you gotta be involved, and and our thinking 
impacts our working. It impacts even how I manage the company, how I set up the company. If I believe in people, if I can believe that they can do more than just, you know, be a cog in my system. Um, but uh, we're trying to figure out how we can hopefully strengthen our own position in our own work. Uh, Dr. Barry Schwartz, welcome back to the show, my friend. Sure. Great to have you. What, I mean, this is, a, a lot of this is just, we run the businesses today, it seems like, kind of blindly following the traditions of the past. I think that's true of a lot of, in a lot of uh, industries. Not, not, some of them, I think, can't get away with that. Right. Things are too dynamic. But most industries, I think what you say is true. We're doing it today the same way it was done yesterday. But the information age seems like it's changing things, or it should be changing things, like, like you were talking about the millennials. I mean, n- nowadays people – I have a son that can make incredible mu- music and music videos and sell it on iTunes without ever leaving his bedroom. You know, here's the thing. The information age has certainly changed work, but it hasn't necessarily changed the aspect of work that you and I have been talking about. So, you know, it's now possible to monitor what your office staff is doing at the keyboard. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, we we can basically do surveillance by remote control. (laughs) So if you're still of of a mind that you need to... you know, exercise tight control over your workforce and be suspicious that they're going to try to put one over on you, then you'll be counting keystrokes. That's true, huh? And making sure that they're, uh, you know, they have their noses to the grindstone or, um, or you know, your timing. Uh, if, if you were, have people working in a call center, you time the calls and you make sure that they dispatch them quickly, never mind whether they solve people's problems. Mm. You know, they got three minutes of call or whatever it is. So it's not automatic that the information age uh, liberates people. Right, no. I mean, actually, yeah, because it'll go back to your basic view of how you see people. Yep. And, and I guess that's the, that's the rub. I mean, if I'm the, if I'm the boss, what, what is kind of the ideal paradigm to have about my people? I, I want to invest in them, but I also want them to be efficient, right? I, and I want them to be here a while. So how do I balance it all? You have to take a bit of a gamble. You know, if you if you exercise tight control, then nobody will nobody will take advantage of you and you'll have a, a mediocre workforce with mediocre productivity. Hmm. If you take a gamble and give people more discretion and supervise them a little less tightly, no doubt there will be some people who take advantage of you. Yeah. And but that's not the worst thing in the world. No, your numbers will be off the chart, probably. Your You'll be doing will better. Be off the charts. And my guess is that if somebody is taking advantage, coworkers will basically discipline this person into shaping up because they don't, you know, they don't want to be taken advantage of either. That's right. Yeah, they don't want to lose a good thing. They don't want to lose a good thing, and they, and they feel like they're being exploited. They're working hard, and here's this person next to them who's basically just uh, dogging it, and they're all getting paid. Hmm. Uh, so, but I think there's a real reluctance to take the gamble, and also I think lots of middle managers. You know, if you started giving people the people you manage discretion, your job might become unnecessary. Mm-hmm. So, to some degree, this careful, close observation and routinization is self-protective on the part of people who are doing the the overseeing. It's. It, I mean, it, then it becomes. 
then it becomes systemic, right? Then, then all of a sudden we just – it's always about self-protection, self-preservation. Then it becomes systemic, exactly. And you've got this whole level of bureaucrats, you know, so reporting to the people at the top who are much more distant from the actual production process. Mm-hmm. And uh, telling them in every way they can how essential they are to the right. efficient running of the company. Well, and that's so, that is part of the thing about technology too, because you can also cover your rear end more, right? Now I document everything and I CC everybody into everything I'm doing, and I just create a, this this per, this appearance of action in my life when really I might be dogging it. You might be dogging it, and there's also you know. It, it, there's a kind of massive suspicion and lack of trust uh, that's embodied by the uh, by the way modern workplaces operate. Hmm. Uh, I think it's unwarranted, and uh, and it becomes uh, as many of the other things we've been talking about. It becomes self fulfilling. Does um, does it does it? Um, I mean, I guess the, the way this is working now is it feels like to me. That in a lot of jobs, maybe not like in a plant or a manufacturing plant or whatever, but it feels like a lot of our jobs are almost more outsourced or post, not outsourced, but I now can just be a contractor. I can work for a company. I can work out of my own place. I can do my, I mean, is that where I should take my life so I have more control over my system? Well, you certainly have more control if you work as a contractor, but you also give a lot up. You know, it's hard. One of the points I make in the book is that people, they don't just care about um, what their day-to-day activities are like on the job. They also care about their work actually having some meaning, mm. that it actually contributes something. Yeah. And if you're a contractor, if you're a gun for hire, then it's kind of hard to associate yourself with the enterprise you're working for. So... It has the virtue that nobody's looking over your shoulder, uh, but it has the drawback that as a gun for hire, I I say, what do you do, you know, and what do you make? And the answer is, well, I do and make whatever the next person who hires me wants me to do and make. Hmm. So not to mention the lack of job security and the lack of commitment um, uh, of employer to employee that this contracting model uh, has built into it. I mean, people like contracting. Some people do because it gives them enormous flexibility and they value the flexibility. They can take two weeks off. They don't have to answer to anybody. And mm-hmm. They can get their bills paid. But I think it's really not in the long term uh, a, a good a good way to organize work so that people get real satisfaction out of what they do. How much of this, we always talk about empowering you know, employees. I mean, at some point, how much of this is in my power? If I'm not the boss, but I work for a great company, do do I? I mean, can I still look at my work differently, manage yeah. my situation better? Talk to us about that, and, and what are so, some of the principles there's a, there's of that? A wonderful study that was done by a colleague of mine who teaches at Yale of hospital janitors. I write about it in the book, um, and you know they have this long list of jo- of, jo- of duties. Um, that involve washing and waxing and emptying trash and restocking shelves, just the sorts of things you would imagine. And that's their job, and that's what some of them do. They punch in, they do their list of duties, they punch out. But then there are janitors who think their job is to do whatever is needed to assist the hospital in its noble mission of 
curing disease and easing suffering. Hmm. So they talk to patients. They comfort uh, uh, the family members of very sick patients who spend all day, every day, you know, sitting in waiting rooms being anxious. They help nurses turn patients so the patients won't get bed sores. None of that's in their job. Yeah, that's not what janitors do. That's not what janitors do, but they're not janitors. Right. They're hospital janitors. Uh-huh. And they have essentially uh, uh, inculcated the aims of the hospital into their own work. Just, could just as well be janitors right in an office building working uh, the night shift. Right. But that's not what they think. They think without my work, without my doing my job well, the hospital couldn't function. Um, you know, diseases, with inf- hospital bread infections would get transmitted right. from patient to patient like wildfire. I'm doing God's work, and I have to take it seriously. But my point is that only some of the janitors do that. Do that. And, the, and w- the question is, what's the secret sauce? How come some of them have this attitude and some of them, they're just punching a clock? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. But clearly, if some of them have this attitude, more of them could have this mm-hmm. attitude. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes – that could be – that could that could be their compensation too. That could make the hard job easier to do. That could make the hours go faster. That could make compensation not as big of a deal for them. It's all true. It's all true. And this, of course, raises another issue, which is: Are you taking advantage of people hmm. in this way? You know, right. you don't pay them very much, uh, but um, you know the satisfaction they get from doing the job makes them keep showing up, and you don't really want to. That's true, huh? Take advantage of people, but. The critical thing in this hospital is they were able to do these extra things because they were not, they didn't have a supervisor looking over their shoulders. You could easily imagine that for whatever reason, the hospital decides to cut its janitorial staff, and all of a sudden you've got twice as many rooms to take care of, and you've got a, a manager, a supervisor, making sure that you're just ticking off the items on your to-do list. Right. And all this other stuff goes away, and now you become a clock puncher just like everybody else. Yeah, yeah. and then, yeah, turnover goes up, yep. attitude goes down. I mean, it's... All, that all happens. So, so the people that uh, Amy Rizniewski studied, the, the Yale um, psychologist, were lucky enough to be working in an environment where they were not micromanaged. Hmm. But even then, only some of them had this attitude. Um, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a chain in, in the Northeast, I don't know how national it is, called the Container Store, hmm. where you buy, just what it sounds like, yeah. you know, you buy stuff to put other stuff in, <laughs> you know, shelving. And Only plastic. in today's day and age. You yeah. buy more stuff to put uh, stuff in. The, the workforce at that place, and it's just, you know, a typical mall store like any other, um, but the people there think their job is to solve your problem. You walk in, you got a problem, and they're going to solve it for you. And sometimes that means selling you less than you intended to buy. Uh, sometimes it involves selling you different than what you intended to buy. They're unbelievably motivated, and they really feel like, you know, they show up every day with the opportunity to solve 50 people's problems. Yeah. And, and the, the attitude of the workforce there is indescribable. It's like no place else I've ever gone well, shopping. None of this sullen, no. indifferent. Well, that's so the different. They know their yeah. inventory. It's just unbelievable. But you're, so, so their purpose isn't, hey, sell containers. 
sell as many containers as you can today. Solve problems. <laughs> it's solve problems. That's and beautiful. I don't know how they get inspired by the people who manage them, but all I can tell you is, if I'm running a business, I want to bottle whatever this. Yeah, absolutely. Place does. Well, and then uh, and then talk about that. I mean, how powerful at the next company meeting or team meeting to sit there and say, "Okay, how were how were you able to solve problems today?" And they do that. That's and brilliant. They feel like they're part of a team. Yeah. So they really are inspired all the way up and down the organization. That's uh, cool. To, and and so so the work you do can be menial, relatively menial. Doesn't take a lot of skill. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's unimportant. It just means that it doesn't take a lot of skill. Right. And how do you invest it with importance? And to some degree, you can do it on your own. You can tell yourself. You know, anybody working retail can say, people come to me, I can make the difference. I can make their day. How am I going to do that? Mm. Uh, Most people don't have that attitude. You could have that attitude. You can, you know, do a number on yourself and transform your work into something where, you know, you're making 20 people's lives better every day. How many of us get to say that? Yeah. And, And I mean, that, and you can find that in any job, right? You can find that in any job as long as the conditions of your work aren't structured to make it essentially impossible. Yeah, against it, yeah. Interesting. Hey, we've got about uh, about 30 seconds, a minute left. Uh, Barry, talk to us. What, what would you say is the one thing? So if I'm in my job, and let's say I am one of the disengaged, 90% disengaged, um, what would you say is the one thing I could do today that would maybe help me? And let's say my company's not against me. It's just I'm tired or whatever. What can uh, I, I do today? I think the one thing that's most important, and not every workplace, not every job can you do this, is to ask yourself, what's the meaning of what I'm doing? How is what I'm doing affecting other people? Hmm. Can I find something in my day-to-day job that makes other people's lives better? And if you identify that and remind yourself of that, I think it can transform your attitude toward your day-to-day activities, no matter how mundane they may be. Beautiful. How can I make others' lives better? That's in such a small way. Yeah. Yeah. And in anywhere, really. A container yeah. store, a professor, wherever. Exactly. Powerful stuff. Dr. Barry Schwartz, we appreciate you. Uh, and thank you for your great work on the book, Why We Work. And we'll, we'll have you back on for one of your other books. Thank you so much. Thanks for your interest. You bet. Appreciate you. Take care. Um, everybody, go again, check out the book, Why We Work by Dr. Barry Schwartz. Also some TED Talks. Just look for TED Talks and Dr. Barry Schwartz. Tons of information out there. Just some of the latest and greatest research, folks. It's it's hard. It's hard to stay engaged, isn't it? And sometimes our companies don't feel like they're on the same page. So be careful if you're a manager as well. You don't want to be the one that's that's creating this disengagement either. We'll take a break. Come back, continue the discussion on the other side of the break. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here. It's uh, it's Tuesday, and uh, there's a lot of news around some candidate. 
can't remember his name. I call him the Donster, but he did put out a new song for his uh, his his candidacy. Have you heard this, Terry? Donald Trump. He's the wreck. He's the wrecking ball. He now uh, has decided that until further notice, until we can get our hands wrapped around it, no Muslims should be entering the country. Now, again, I don't know what the check for Muslim is. I guess you ask the Muslim. But if the Muslim were here to do terroristic acts, I'm betting he might lie. He may have been told beforehand to say no to that question. Yeah. So if they ask you your religion, just say, I don't have one. And then proceed to the terrorist site. Unbelievable. But again, we've decided. I've decided. I'll take all the blame. Yeah, don't speak for me. I've decided that he's doing this just to get attention. I think Donald's doing this to get attention. I'm not even convinced he actually believes it, but he's going to blow it up because he's getting all of the airwaves right now. And then he's sucking all of the air out. All the other candidates spin. And for another two to three weeks, everyone will be spinning. Well, then all the other candidates are asked about Trump. They spend their whole time talking about Trump instead of talking about why you should vote for them. Exactly. So then that'll suck all of the air out until Christmas. And then in Christmas, no one's listening anyway. No, it's Christmas. And then in January, he's just got one more month to run to get to Iowa. And then people are – so now every candidate is asking, what do you think about Trump? And they're all like, crazy, except Cruz, who's like, I know nothing. Colonel Klink or what's his name? Schultz. Yeah, it's it's over your head. He's too young. He just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's a good show. It's only the greatest show. Another like 40 years ago? No, no. Oh, I've seen Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Just like – You know, Schultz, like he never knew anything. People were he still has no out. idea what you're talking about. I've I've seen it like three times. You so. went to Germany on your mission. Yeah, come yeah, on. Yeah, well, they don't watch. Hogan's they don't watch Hogan's Heroes. Heroes. It's a comedy. It's huge. That's why they lost the war. <laughs> they need to watch that. Um, so anyway, I'm not going to talk about Trump anymore. But here's the deal. I am frustrated about the economy. What about it? So I'm trying to do the 12 days of Christmas for my family. Okay. And it's financially killing me. Like the literal Mm -hmm. 12 days, not just having 12 things. Not 12 days. No. I'm doing doing the 12 days of Christmas. All right. Okay. So why is it breaking the bank Uh, per se? Great question. Hmm. But the cost of partridges rose 25% from last year. Oh. Do you know how hard it is to even get a partridge? In a pear tree? Some of them don't even want to sit no, in a pear tree. I understand that. They're finicky. And should you duct tape a partridge on a pear tree? Probably not advisable. A pear tree, by the way, costs about 190 bucks. Wow. Partridge, about 25 bucks. Hmm. That's a lot of moo. It's expensive. Do you know how hard it is to find turtle doves, by the way? I wouldn't even know where to begin. Well... Internet. Or are those sitting in a, in a coop of some kind? Turtle doves went up 11.5%. Whoa. 11.5. Whoa. Pick a good one. They're buzzing the tower. By the way, a pair of turtle doves, what do you think that costs you? No idea. 290 
Who sets the prices on these things? Uh, turtle dove harvesters. Okay. I don't know the word. They'd be called wranglers, I believe. Wranglers. Ranch- turtle dove wranglers. The Ranchers? stock index of turtle doves is... It's crazy. Maybe it's a commodity. It comes out of the Chicago Board and Trade. Guess what it's supposed to cost me to do the 12 days of Christmas this year? Total? Yeah. What is it? $34,131. Can you substitute some of those? for? No. Do you know how hard it is to catch a Lord leaping? Wow. Depends on the Lord. <laughs> I mean, but a good leaping Lord. Yeah. It's crazy. Just kind of... I guess break his fall. Is that what you're trying to do? By the way, gold rings, you'd think that those would be expen- those would be going down because price of gold's been dropping. No. Same price as last Same year. Same price. Wow. By the way, geese are laying. Mm. It's all timing. Well, absolutely. You can't just get geese. No. They have get- to be a laying. I mean, I called about a thousand places yesterday. Do you have geese? Yeah. Are they a laying? Uh, no. No. Not for a week. I'll call next week. <laughs> It's hard. Pipers piping, drummers drumming. Then you got to get them all together. So what do you do with 12 drummers drumming? You got to buy drums. You got to get drummers. Well, you'd hope they come with their own. Oh, well, right. And, and I mean, what, aren't you more renting a drummer rather than buying a drummer? Maybe that's my problem. Yeah. I've been buying them. Apparently, by the way, if you do this online, it's more expensive. Because you got to do shipping. Ah. How do you ship 12 drummers? Can you do like Amazon Prime and just get it for free? Free shipping on all 12 days of Christmas <laughs> orders? And you got to, yeah. If you if you have Amazon Prime, it's a lot less expensive. Truck pulls up, all this stuff comes out but at then, the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then you got to start asking yourself, do you put the maids a-milking with the lords a-leaping? Hmm. No, I wouldn't. Separate. Sounds like an HR issue. Yeah. Maybe we got to call somebody Ladies else. Ladies dancing, this. pipers piping. Ah! Bad idea. This is a bad idea. So See, $34,000, Yeah. Saying. Last year, by the way, about 33900 mm. So it's gone up. It's costing more. If you buy it online, it's $43,000, $10,000 more. Wow. Shipping. And you're getting gouged. What's happening to Christmas? What website are you looking at? What do you mean? Well, I, I always go to my12daysofchristmas.com. Oh, no, no, no. Have you ever tried 12 Days of Christmas R Us? Way good. I, I didn't know that was... Yeah, check it out. Okay. Discount. They have last year's Lords a-leaping. So secondhand? Uh-huh. Okay. You can buy used. Are, are they as it's good just as last, it, It's last year's model. It's not secondhand. Okay, but they're acceptable at least? Yeah. <laughs> okay. who, who tracks these things? I don't know. See, but here's the deal. Why isn't Donald Trump worrying about this? Makes me mad. Priorities. See, I'm not even going to give him time. I'm just going to talk about this. Hey, um... Got a great guest, Ron Hager. Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us today. He's going to talk about, uh, you know, do you want to live forever, by the way? I'd like to live a a bit of time. I don't know about forever. We talked about, uh, I think, a drug you can take that could help you live to 120. Yeah, they think. But I don't know. Do you want to live to 120? Well, I mean, it depends how you're living. I don't want to live to 120, like, you know, and not be able to function. Function. Yeah. I want to be able to walk and I want to be able to. You're talking about quality of life here. Yeah. You can get away with a lot of things if you're 120, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, what is, they're not going to stop you. You can do anything you want. Don't you think? What are I they yeah, do? I don't think people are, are going to arrest a 120-year-old they're man. They're not going to look down on you. They're going, no. oh, he's just No, old. you're just like, ah, my head doesn't work. <laughs> anyway, um, he'll be Ron, Dr. Ron Hager is going to be talking about how we can live longer, be healthier, and one thing might be exercising. Why don't we exercise more? We all know we should. Why don't we? We'll talk about that. 
with the good doc. But before we do that, let's get to the headlines with Terry. Terry, what's going on? Thanks, Matt. Both suspects in the San Bernardino, California shooting that killed 14 people and had been ra- uh, radicalized for some time and had participated in target practice as recently as days before the December 3rd shooting. This according to the FBI. FBI Assistant Director David Bowditch. As the investigation has progressed, we have learned and believe that both subjects were radicalized and have been for quite some time. Now, how did that happen? The question we're trying to get at is how did that happen and by whom and where did that happen? And I will tell you right now, we don't know those answers at this point. Investigators are still looking into whether the suspects had links to any foreign terrorist groups. This according to the L.A. Times. Senator Lindsey Graham is disgusted with Donald Trump's increasingly divisive rhetoric, particularly the Republican presidential frontrunner's proposed ban on all Muslim immigrants and tourists to the United States. Graham had this to say on CNN this morning. Just another day in the United States of America. Another day of gunfire, what, what happened? Panic, what happened to fear. his? That's not accent. In the city of San Bernardino. That was his, funny. His accent went. He's mad. So Senator Graham criticized. That was not him. Okay. That was the BBC from okay, last good. week. Clarify. But Senator Graham joins Chris Christie, Jeb Bush, John Kasich, all demanding, all, all condemning Donald Trump's statements. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan jumped in this morning, saying that uh, his comments are not who we are as a party. St. Petersburg Mayor, St. Petersburg, Florida Mayor Rick Kreiserman tweeted Monday that he was banning Trump until we fully understand the dangerous threat wow. posed by all Trumps. <laughs> yeah, even for, former President, <laughs> yeah, Vice President Dick Cheney thinks that Trump is wrong. On That's a big subject. deal. St. Petersburg's a big city. It's yeah. right next to Tampa, right? So yeah. <laughs> he is, can't he go is to Tampa. banned until we figure out what the threat is of all That's Trumps. That's a great point. Um, and in lighter news, of course, the, according to the New York Times, holiday season at the White House is quite the scene. Navy yeah. men are pitting dates in the White House driveway. Coast Guard personnel mash uh, sweet potatoes in the East Wing's basement kitchen. Wow. The pastry shop, which is about the size of a, a galley kitchen in a small Manhattan apartment. I don't know what that means. Tiny. Ba- bakers are preparing more than 500 pounds of dough for 25,000 holiday cookies, including some that look like Bo and Sonny, who are the Obama's dogs. Hmm. It goes on and says there are 20 holiday parties hosted by the Obamas in the White House. Oh, right? Wow. 45 turkeys will, will be brined. 62 trees are, de- are uh, decorated, 400 hours spent making ornament replicas of the White House dogs. And a partridge. 500 pounds of gingerbread chocolate needed mm. to make a replica White House. 500 pounds of cookie dough used to bake the cookies. Mm. We talked about 1,200 pounds of sweet potatoes. Wow. For the soufflés that yeah. they make. So 1,600 pounds of baby lamb chops for dinner. Oh. Yeah. 4,000 bells used to adorn the garland in the, in the White House, 25,000 cookies, and 70,000 ornaments. What is this costing the, us? I don't know. I was reading that list like, wow, that looks expensive. Uh, somebody's having a few too many parties. 20 holiday parties. And, and you your, thought you had it. <laughs> your, your first thought was, does, he, does the president have to go to all those? I know. Yeah, that would be horrible. Yeah. That's a lot of parties. I've been to two so one so far. One got canceled. So that was, Lucky. Eh, sort of. And then there's two more on Saturday. We need to have one for our team. We are. It's going to be right about now? 10 minutes after the show. Excellent. I'll say Merry Christmas That'll and I need great. you all to do this. Oh, cool. That's great. And do you have any ice cream we can have, Ben? Didn't you save some that I gave you? So we won't be having any ice no cream. No ice cream at the party, apparently. There will be no ice cream. Great party, Ben. Let's have a party next week and Ben can bring ice cream. Won't you, Ben? Okay. We're going to take a break. Uh, Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us. He's here to make us healthy.
He needs to go to the White House, for heaven's sakes. Those people, they're out of control. We, uh, they, they're eating too much. They're having too many parties. Who needs 20 parties at the White House? We're going to take a break, come back. Dr. Ron Hager is going to show us how to be healthier, uh, how to live longer, and, hey, maybe even how to rec- or exercise regularly. How about that? <laughs> I'd like to see him try. We'll, uh, he's going to give us the insight to healthier living. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, uh, Dr. Ron Hager. He is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young. He's an expert in, um, what's it called? I always forget the name of it. Basically, chronic disease. Chronic disease. Prevention. Yeah. Okay. You're, well, that's at least a class. I'm I an teach. expert in chronic disease. You're an expert in chronic disease prevention. Yeah. yeah. And you're here today to teach us about. Um, why people don't exercise, but there's a great phrase you use. Talk about your quote. Oh, well. <clears throat> this is so cool. Some years ago, I was taking a class <clears throat> actually here at BYU from a professor who I thought at the time was pretty old. Yeah. Uh, he just actually recently retired and still uh, – Wow. I, and I still see him every day. He, he comes and he gets his two workouts in every day. And he's uh, – but anyway, back then, he used to say in class, old age is not for sissies. And I don't know why, but that struck that me stuck. and it stuck with me. It's true. And then I began to think about other people I knew, uh, you know, that I thought were old yeah. back then, which were actually my age now. Right. Uh, but even my grandparents and and my parents and other examples that I'd seen. And I thought, you know, it, this is interesting, this whole idea of old age not being for sissies. Not that you have to be tough and mean or anything like that. Uh, but the But what it meant to me was it's something you have to make an effort. Right. Towards you got to work for it, you know. Uh, I mean, you think that it just happens, but if you want to, I mean, old age healthy, you have to work for. Particularly that. old age unhealthy, well, you don't have to do much for it. Yeah, and, and 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 you know, there's good and bad kind of in that sort of a statement because it kind of reflects on you know medical advancements and uh-huh. technology, which I'm extremely grateful for. Uh, but really, if you think about it, Matt, what has happened is uh, we've just gotten better at keeping people alive in a disease state. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, you look at some of the the statistics and you see that like cardiovascular disease death rates are coming down. You know, and you get kind of happy about that's that. That's great. You know, you say, "Whoa, that's awesome!" But you actually look at cardiovascular disease prevalence rates, and they are the same. They're or the same. Or, or so maybe, people or, have cardiovascular disease. It's just they're it's not killing. Them. They're not dying from it. Yeah. <laughs> because because of drugs, drugs and treatments and and this kind of stuff. But, but prevention, one, we're not doing. But one of the one of the root causes. I mean, there are a number, but one of the root causes of many of our health afflictions is just not exercising, just not being physically active. Yeah. And to be fair, we don't live in an environment that's real conducive to that, or at least that promotes it. You know, I mean, right. everything is designed to make our lives easier and more efficient. And we actually, in a sense, get robbed of opportunities to move. Well, like Denmark, you ha- you ride your bike well, yeah, it's like, everywhere, well, even in the winter. Yeah, it's like 60% of the population rides a bike to work. Which is crazy because I'm sitting here thinking, someone asked me yesterday, don't you go walking every day? And I'm like, ah, I used to. Yeah. Till the winter hit. 
Right. But it's not snowing here in Utah. It's still no. walkable. Yeah. And you know what, Matt? If you lived in an environment where you had to yeah. walk to right. get somewhere, like there was no other option, you would do it. Absolutely. But it's because of all the other options that are part of our environment and part of our culture that we have kind of viewed – I think taking a mindset that, well, if it's efficient, if it saves me time, yeah. if it's easier, then that's a good thing. But somehow we've got to change our mentality. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking at a car right now and I've got to decide, is it worth buying the seats that not only heat my backside, <laughs> right. but now I've got one that can cool my backside. Yeah, yeah. It's like, so it's that easy now. Yeah. Just get yeah. a car. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy. So, you know, the, the question I guess is, you know, other than some of the, what we've talked about, you know, why? Why? What's the number one reason people give for not being regularly physically active or even, you know, and, and that can be, you know, physical activity doesn't have to be exercise. Some people kind of freak out when they hear the word exercise. Right. Um, yeah. You know, they want to lie down until the feeling passes. But uh, uh, but physical activity can just be things like, uh, you know, if you work even in a, a big city, in a high-rise building, you know, you say, well, what, what opportunities do I have to be physically active? Well, if you work on the 18th floor, take the elevator to the 15th floor and walk. They walk up. Yeah, or or park your car further away from your destination. I mean, there's all kinds of ways sure. to be physically active without, without actually thinking of it as like formal, pre-planned, structured exercise. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing wrong with that either. But the number one reason people give for not exercising regularly is, I don't have the time. Oh, man. Yeah, so... That's true, though. So that reminds me of that's what a, everyone's saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 and, and it, it it makes a difference, you know, depending on your your job or your career or how many kids you have or or whatever. But but the the fact of the matter is the reality is Matt that if it's a priority, you if have you, time. If, if if it's important to you, then you you figure it out. You make the time. And I remember working in a wellness program some years ago. Uh, at a at at actually at BYU, and uh, the dean of one of the colleges was coming in because he he wanted to you know get assessed and find out where he was at and 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 try and figure out you know how to lose some weight or whatever and that was the purpose of the program and I was going over all of his results with him and I said now one thing that's apparent here is uh, remember I'm a student and I'm talking to a dean yeah. so I'm a little intimidated and I said one of the things that's really apparent here is you know you don't get any kind of exercise or physical activity. What did he say? That's because I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time. So I tried something uh, that I also remember Dr. Olson saying, the guy that said old age is not for sissies. He said, if you don't want to make time to exercise, then you better make time to be sick. So I said that to this dean. And and then I kind of held my breath like, am I going to lose my head or what? And uh, he actually kind of respected that. Interesting. And, And he said, you know what? That makes a lot of sense to me. How much time do I need to plan to be sick? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, and, I'll uh, get that on my calendar today. And, and then, and the, I mean, he still kind of said, well, I still don't have time, but he did appreciate uh, the quote. So uh, something I've started saying recently to people who say they don't have time to exercise, then I say, well, I only have, uh, then I have three questions for you. I say, what's your favorite flower? <laughs> what's your favorite hymn? And who would you like to speak at your funeral? Oh, oh, oh. Because there's a lot of research, Matt. That's fighting words. <laughs> yeah, there's, that's but, true. But there's a lot of research to show that uh, being sedentary has actually been linked to uh, mortality. It's actually been linked to uh, premature death, hmm. uh, primarily through, you know, it's it, it, through its 
ability to increase risk of many chronic diseases. So, um, you know, it, it's important, you know, to, I think, think about these things because you, you have to make it a priority. Oh, yeah. Now, now there's a woman I came across uh, just in the news uh, some years ago. Her name's Mavis Lindgren. Back in 1997, she set an 11th Portland Marathon record. Holy cow. At the age of 90. Ah. So 90 years old. She's running a marathon. Uh, and what got her into running? Um, uh, she ran her first marathon when she was 70. So it's not like she'd been doing yeah. this all her life. So in her earlier years, at around 60, 65 years old, she was having a lot of health problems. And her doctor, so this this is an important tip here, the doctor said, maybe you should exercise more at, you know, 65 years old. <laughs> and so she took it to heart and she said, you know, I'll start doing that. And her health problems went away. She eliminated her medications and she never looked back. She and started running. She started running. And she said uh, at one point that she had not missed one day of training in seven years. Now, remember, she started running when she was in her late yeah, 60s. Yeah. So did she make it a priority? Did she yeah. say nothing is going to get in the way of this? Right. That's what she did. Well, but see, that here's the, it's because she's retired. Yeah. yeah. Well, she she I, didn't have to work. But well, she can was, you imagine run, starting running? If you haven't run till 65 or 70 and then you go run, I mean, yeah. that's, well, that's okay, a big deal. Okay. Well, how, and then run marathons. Well, here's another guy, Ben Levinson. In 1998, set a new world record for the shot put at the Nike World Masters Games. He was 103 years old when he <laughs> set that record. And get this. Man. Get the, so you might say, well, yeah, he's a former Olympian or a former collegiate athlete right. or whatever. No, that's not the case. Um, uh at 90 years old, okay, at 90, uh, he was said to be depressed and very unfit when he met an athletic trainer. No and way. And the athletic trainer said, if you start exercising, you'll feel like you're 80 again. <laughs> That's how he got him going. And Ben Levinson said, you know, I, I'm going to start doing that. Um, so, uh, so That's amazing. So at 90, he starts his first ever fitness program and so that he can feel 80 again. And uh, so he began a, just a basic strength training program, just lifting some weights, doing some 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 basic exercises. Uh, started walking on a treadmill a little bit, just two and a half miles an hour. And uh, and in a short time, he actually found he grew two inches. Did he really? Because it changed his posture. Because he was all kind of hunched yeah, over yeah. and frail and looking. That just tightened him up. And it just tightened him up. He grew two inches and started competing in uh, in, in senior games events. And when he was asked. Asked about his old age, what's your secret? He said it could be genes, and there's some truth to yeah, that. Probably. Genetics can make a difference. He said it could be sensible living. That is probably more important than genes. Uh, he said it could be optimism. So there's kind of a mentality. Uh-huh, there's the kind psyche. of an attitude uh-huh. or a perspective. He says it could be moderation. Okay, So in other words, you know, not going to this extreme or yeah. that extreme, not looking for magic bullets, not looking for shortcuts. Just sticking at so it. Just, just sticking with it. He says it could be staying active. He said he never smoked and he did he did he doesn't drink and he doesn't do drugs. Wow. And he said most of the time he keeps away from spicy foods. <laughs> it's that darn spicy food. So setting oh, a that's setting a world record for shot put at 103. Well, see that's that gives us hope. That gives us hope. Let's take a break, Ron. We're speaking with Ron Hager. He's associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences and he's uh he's talking about disease prevention, really being healthier, exercising you know, living a healthy, longer life. 
We'll take a break. We'll be right back. More on your health with the, right here on the Matt Townsend Show with Ron Hager. Stick with us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us is uh, Professor Ron Hager here from Exercise Sciences Department in the College of Life Sciences uh, on campus here at Brigham Young University. He's trying to teach us how to exercise regularly. And you don't we, – we psych ourselves out. Don't you think, Ron, that some of this just has to do with the fact that we think it has to be a certain way. You have to look a certain way. You have yeah. to use certain equipment to get a workout. And you and you, and I think there's also a perception that some for some reason you have to pay for it. Yeah, you know you got to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> you know it, it. You you can't just have your health without right. some kind of a capital outlay. Isn't that crazy? I think it's crazy. Well, because back in the day they were healthy, just chasing farm animals and doing the farm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, basically, what I'm talking about today, Matt, is something called compression of morbidity. Morbidity means disease, mm. and if you're compressing disease throughout the lifespan, particularly at the end of life, because the average number of years of decreased quality of life or even disability uh, at the end of life is about 10 to 12 years. Mm. So, you know, and you probably know people, I know I've known people who for the last, you know, part of their life, they spent most of the time wishing they were dead. Right, because wanting out. Yeah, because they and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about like assisted suicides here or anything like that, but I'm just saying there may be an alternative. Yeah, and the and the research and the data and actually many many personal experiences that I've had working with people suggest that uh, the choices you make and how you do things can compress morbidity like like shrink it you can be turn sick, it you make can be, it smaller you can be sick less you can have i mean you might still die of a heart attack but it's more like shorter term so in right. other words you get sick and you die instead of you get sick and you linger for 10 years yeah yeah and and so that's th- actually a cool metaphor to think of yourself that every time you're exercising or eating healthy you're actually compressing your morbidity that's a great way to think about it because that's exactly that's the work you're exercising. That's great. Yeah, that that, that that's exactly what you're doing. Um, you know, I a good friend of mine who wrote a book called The Culprit and the Cure uh, talks a lot about this, and he says his goal in terms of compressing morbidity. I think I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing as he told me this, but he he wants. To, I think it's actually in his book the story that he tells. He wants to be like 90 years old, mm. and he wants to be snowboarding <laughs> with his great grandson and hit a tree. What? And you know, <laughs> yeah. so so a full and active life, yeah. right up to the very end. So that's kind of a, oh, that's a, 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 an overly descriptive. I mean, sure, uh, it's, it's perspective. Seriously traumatic for the boy. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. sure, it'll mess his life up. Yeah, for obviously, long. he's only thinking yeah. of himself. <laughs> that's right. But, How powerful! I mean, that is a cool metaphor. But that's a good way to go. Yeah. So compression of morbidity. Uh, I go down every year to St. George, Utah. They have the Huntsman World Senior Games down there, and more than ten thousand senior athletes show up from all over the country and even all over the world. And one year I'm there uh, doing some health screenings, and a man comes through, and he's got a couple of medals around his neck. And I'm thinking, you know, wow, this guy's quite the athlete. And So part of the screening was to ask, I needed to know how, how what his birth date was, how, mm-hmm. old, how old he was. And, his, and when he told me, 
it was just the week before, uh, you know, I, he was doing this screening. And I said, hey, happy birthday. I said, you're, you're here competing at the senior games for your birthday. Yeah. And, and, and this man was like, uh, I don't know, he's like 80 years old or something. I mean, he was, he was old. And, and he said, no. He says, I didn't, this, this isn't what I did for my birthday. I said, what would you do for your birthday? So the week before he shows up to compete at the games, he did a rim-to-rim hike at the Grand Canyon. Holy cow. <laughs> for his 80th birthday. That is amazing. So, so these are people yeah. who, uh, you know, it reminds me of the saying, if you don't know how old you are, how old would you be? Mm-hmm. How old so, do you feel? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So you get this perspective when you are around these aged, older people who are living life to the fullest. Uh, a, a study I read uh, not too long ago uh, was actually done some years ago in an assisted care facility where researchers went in and wanted to know if a simple strength training program would improve strength. And I believe the average age was 90 years old in this small sample. Hmm. I, it might have only been like 12 or 15 people. I can't remember the details. But all but one of them had severe mobility issues. They were like in wheelchairs. Yeah. And after something like eight or ten weeks of doing some simple strengthening exercises, there was like 154% improvement overall in strength, and all but one of them were now out of, of their wheelchairs. wheelchairs. Unbelievable. See, yeah. that's just – but that's just – that's simple. Yeah. That's a simple thing. Just yeah. a little yeah. strength mobility. Just yeah. and, and, anything. And you don't need – fancy weights or dumbbells or barbells right. or machines with cables and plates and pulleys and all this kind of stuff. You can use cans of soup. Right. And you can use uh, body weight milk exercises. Jugs. Milk jugs. <laughs> right. But even body weight exercises, doing some simple things where you're just resisting your own mm-hmm. uh, body weight. And that's what these researchers did in this assisted care facility. So, Amazing. So, so the point I guess I'm trying to make is, uh, first of all, uh, it's never too late to start. Right, because yeah. I mean, I just gave examples of 90, people 80. who are eighty, ninety, one hundred and three, yeah. uh, and and they're and they're changing their lives even then. Yeah. Uh, but the second point is, uh, don't wait. That's right. Right. Don't wait. Don't even wait. I'll do it after the holidays. Right. Like just start now because exactly. even that would change how you do the holidays. Exactly. And so people out there might be thinking too. Uh, yeah, you know, boy, I'm motivated now. I'm going to go. Straight down to the local gym, and I'm going to hire a no, personal no, no, trainer. No, no. Yeah, right. You, you no. don't. You don't need to. No. It just does not. I mean, I'm telling you, you, you've been deceived if you think that you have to buy your health. Right. It's already in you. Yeah. You just have to let it out. That, you, it's funny when you see those weight loss centers that like it's only a dollar a pound, <laughs> and you're like. How much did it cost you to put it on? That's my pound. Wait a minute. They should pay me for that fat. Yeah, exactly. Or or I'm losing money. It cost me $3 a pound to put that on. (laughs) I'm losing it. Well, this is great information. Man, we appreciate you on. This is uh, a great start. So today, everybody, go start. Do something today. Something. Start. Something's better than nothing. That's right. Good. And And you don't have to go get a membership to do it. No, or buy any fancy equipment. Most people... Who buy into the infomercials, you know, like for fitness equipment, the ab blaster or the butt buster or whatever right. catchy Don't name. Don't do the it, butt it, buster, it, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Whatever catchy <laughs> name it has, uh, 
mostly those things, treadmills, whatever, they kind of become dirty clothes racks. Oh, they totally very do. quickly. Some of them are incredible racks, though. <laughs> Yeah, they, are. they can hold a lot of <laughs> my, dirty clothes. They can. My pants never wrinkle. Yeah, Interesting stuff. Well done, Ron. We're going to take a break, come back, uh, visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation, find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us, helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. There it is, little John Lennon for you. Uh, his death was in 1980 on this day, December 8th, 1980. A little tribute. And who better to uh, share this tribute with than our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, Spencer and Brian Logan. How are you guys? Fantastic song. Do you love that song? Are you crying? I am not crying. However, whenever I hear this song, I think about Paula Abdul crying on American Idol when David Archuleta did his rendition. Of Are you saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Paula. But, you know, she, yeah, she was probably, you know, under a, a drug. <laughs> she was very emotional is, at times. Love is, love is a drug. Love is a drug. Brian, welcome. How are you, buddy? I'm good. Do you love Paula, John Lennon? You, huh? yeah, do you like John Lennon, Brian? Mm-hmm. You seem like a John Lennon fanatic. I think Lil Wayne did a remix. Or something <laughs> Lil Wayne, like that. <laughs> yeah, he did a great rendition of that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's the connection. Lil Weezy, there. that's the connection there. <laughs> hey, um, did you guys hear earlier? I'm sure you were listening to our show because I know you don't miss it. Um, we we were talking about the 12 days of Christmas. Do you know how much it costs to actually pay for the full 12 days of Christmas experience? Well, it depends on. <laughs> you got to have milking maids. You got to have lords oh, a leaping, okay, pipers okay. piping. So like the actual song, yeah, yeah. items. I the whole have no thing. Idea. Uh, just guess. Half a million. No, where are you living? Uh, uh, what do you think, say, Brian? I'm gonna say three hundred. Three hundred thousand dollars. Nope, uh, it's thirty-four thousand one hundred and thirty dollars. Okay, well, how much is a maid a milking? <laughs> Depends what they're milking. It all depends on what they're milking. That's what I'm saying. Half a mil, dude. Yeah. See, it's uh, it's about thirty four thousand because you got to get cows, you got to get milkmaids, you got to get a pail, you got to get uh, lords leaping, right? <laughs> you got to get pipers piping, drummers drumming. It's a big aren't, deal. Aren't the lords alone like worth a ton? Yeah. And then you know what? When you put a lord a leaping, you got to put them in separate boxes. Because by the time you transport them, they'll leap each other to death. It's it, it's thirty four thirty four thousand dollars. Now, if you happen to do it online, yeah, it's, it costs. The Kardashians, um, <laughs> Scott Disick, he's, isn't he? We've gotten there, Matt. We have hit the Kardashian. Yeah, boy. I mean, angle. if we brought if we brought Lil Weezy into this, we <laughs> might as well go all out. Let's, let's go. Morning. Let's go all the way to <laughs> the <started> bottom. <laughs> so much promise. It started with John Lennon, <laughs> and ended up with Lil Weezy and the Kardashians. All the way down. Yeah. It's uh, it's forty three thousand dollars if you want to do it online. So, if I suggest because I'm doing it for my family, um, the twelve days of Christmas, oh, I, I suggest man. you do it. Just you know, you do it at your in your local area. That way, you don't have to pay shipping fees. Okay, I'm shipping. just shipping just throwing it out there. We'll, get, we'll always okay. get you. Um, by the way, uh, what I don't know if you guys are getting me anything for Christmas, but 
you know, no. I'd I appreciate got you a Christmas it. present, dude. Well, I, well, yeah, you did. Spence I didn't did. Get you anything. Yeah, but Brian, if I'm you not want, going to either. you're not. So. Oh no, I, I just want to be upfront and uh, set the proper expectations, man. Oh so. man, because I had this big thing for you that I guess I'll just call it off. What? No, it's okay. It's better to give than receive. No, right? it's it's tickets to Little Wheezy. Oh, I'll, I'll gladly take those. Yeah. He's, uh, he's playing saying, at the Vivint Center. I'm not you anything doesn't mean that you don't have to give me anything. Mm, well, it's, it's not <laughs> how I see it. I mean, what? I, it's just, I just. What would Jesus do? Have you, I, you know what? I'll get you one of those wristbands. Well, I'll tell you, if w- we're going to w- go with w- what would J- Jesus do, he would not send you to the Lil Weezy concert. <laughs> You're probably right. I mean, if we want to be but, technical. But he would give. He, he would receive. give. I'm going to give you something. I'll get you a wristband, a WWJD. What would Jesus do? No, no, no. I, I don't. Don't yeah. worry about that. I, l- let me just get you a wrist. Let me just get you a present. I'm you gonna send. What? I'm gonna send you down a present today. Okay, I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna get you one too. You know, when I first got here at BYU, I wore like three or four. You know, yeah, wristbands because they're, they're they're reminders, right? Right. That's and right. I, and I needed like three or four uh, reminders. But uh, now he's got me. Everybody, yeah. that's right. I don't. Uh, I've I've graduated. I have no wristbands anymore. Yep. Um, that's great. What's What's interesting though is that um, me and Coach Minnell kind of made this joke where it's you know what would uh, Joseph Smith do, you know? So you yeah. can use it. That's you know what you want. That's really you know? good. Yeah, <laughs> it's really profound. Um, you, you but you got married. You gave up all of the wristbands for the wedding band. Yeah, actually, you know what? I have a permanent wristband. I have, That's right. Uh, remember, I, told, I think I said yeah, yeah. I have my wife's name tattooed Around on your, my wrist and, yeah. uh, and our wedding date. So That's I'll right. So forget. Yeah. So we know, we'll know if you have marriage problems because you'll be gnawing at your wrist. Uh, no, I just wear a watch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That was that was quick, man, Brian. Way too fast, Brian. He's, he's thought about <laughs> this. That way too thought quick. about this a lot. This. I already thought it thought this whole thing what through. What would I do? That's crazy. Mm. Hey, uh, what are you doing on your show today? You guys are still doing the show, right? Even though Bronco's leaving and the Utes are playing the Cougars, you're still going to do your show. Yeah. You know, we tackled it pretty hard yesterday. We thought we'd yeah. give ourselves a day off. But Take a day off. Turns out that the coaching carousel, rumor mill, hearsay, speculation mm. process is running rampant. Really? You know what? I heard you clarify. Is John Madden coming to coach BYU? Boom. I, I heard I, he, no, he no. converted to the LDS church and he's coming to coach. <laughs> no, John Madden is not. He is busy touring the USA on In his, his bus. bus. Okay. Good. So what? So you're going to have to talk about the rumors. What are the? Well, just give cool. us a taste. A First little... of all, okay. So, so who are the rumored candidates? Yeah. And how much do you know about each of good, them? Good. Good. We may or may not play meet that coaching candidate, <gasps> man. Ooh, this could be a fun game. That's mm-hmm. a fun game. You know what you ought to do is like take the eyes of Sataki and like the mouth of Anderson, and put them together. You know what I mean? Eyes and mouth. And then, like, 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 play a game where, like, who is this guy? <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? Be, the Mitch and that, uh, the mix would, and match. Game. Yeah, that would be funny. I'm hey, just, what, if, what if we had like Little Wayne's hair, like his dread? <laughs> oh, okay, Little Wayne's back. Again. He's back. Yeah. I'll say this much, Matt. There are there are several reports from like credible news sources, mm-hmm. and they all say different things. You know, one guy saying. Robert and I might be the guy. Another one that the coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks, Daryl Bevel, might be the guy. Yeah. Another one saying that Kalani Sataki is a top candidate. Kyle Whittingham is a serious candidate. Interesting. What's funny about that is all of those guys, <laughs> I, 
and, and then we're hearing different things than those guys. Oh. It's like, well, uh, okay. Yeah, who do you trust? You, you know where I go? You don't. I trust you. I trust Tom Holmo when he announces who the coach is. Do you think it'll be this week? I think that's really fast. Yeah, I do too. I... I think, my, it, I think, I think it, it will to, be before the bowl game. I think I, it needs to be that fast. I would though. my best guess mid next week. But it seems like you got to go slow on this one, right? I mean, you got to. It's got to. There's a lot of people that need to be involved. Uh, I think. I think. Which is mid- why I don't think it will be this week. You know what? Right. You know what's interesting? Uh, interesting question. I, I wonder if other universities, um, if something like this happens, if it's a lot quicker. Uh, mm. if, if BYU is a little Probably. bit slower, it's because you have to go through the church. Yeah. And, you know, kind of, but it seems like too. They got to talk to your bishop and stuff. Fast right? is relative at BYU. But don't you need it? You need it to be fast because recruiting, right? You've got to get you've got to get everybody that's in the recruiting cycle to be calm and yes, at peace. Yes and no, but with the fact that Bronco Mendenhall is coaching the bowl game, I don't think they need to have a coach in place until December twentieth, the day after the. Bowl so game. he can go. Yeah, he can go. You know, allay the fears for now. That's good. No. He can go and take those recruits with him. Oh, Brian Lamar Logan. What are you saying? Lamar is not my name. Okay, darn it. That That was a good guess. I would have named Lamar for a black guy, too. Oh, it's a good name. Daryl. Is it Daryl? It's Darrell. (laughs) It's Darrell. Darrell. I got to get that straight. It's it's Vincent, actually. Is it really? That's my dad's name. Does anybody call you Vinny? Oh, I got, oh, I gotta let you guys go. Your show's about Brian, to start. Brian Vincent Logan. Okay. We can talk all day. Hey, man, you should uh, Vinny, thanks, contact man. my people. Yeah, I'll have my people. people. Yeah, contact my people. Yeah. And then we'll come uh, over and I'll get you a present. I can come. I can come on the show. Yeah, we'll let's do know, it, Vinny. If you have, let me. Yeah, let me. <laughs> D Vinny. Vinny. Yeah, I'll be Vinny. The, we got to make up a cool name for you though. <laughs> okay, thanks, guys. Go have a great show, Spence. Knock them dead. You got it, brother. Keep the peace. Good stuff. <laughs> they got to get to work. They got to get waxed and ready. Interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> Brian Logan, man. He just says stuff. He's funny. Hey, did you hear this? Uh, British lawmakers are pushing for a 20% tax on soft drinks. Can you believe that? On sugary drinks. Man, doesn't feel right. Communists. Is <laughs> that communism? I don't think it is. Uh, here's a sad, uh, sad day. Um, a man picks up his girlfriend from jail in Tempe, Arizona, in a reported stolen truck. Hey, a little advice for you. If you're going to go to the jail and pick up anybody, don't take a stolen vehicle. When picking up your girlfriend from jail, try not committing a crime while doing it. The Tempe police tweeted out a photo of the truck with words, chivalry, picking up your girlfriend from jail in a stolen truck. A Tempe Police Department officer was making his way to headquarters when his license plate reader notified him that a reported stolen vehicle had just passed him. The truck stopped and the driver told police he was borrowing the car from someone and was there to pick up his girlfriend. The driver was taken into custody and the officers are investigating the situation. (laughs) Holy cow. Are you kidding? Cops now have license plate readers on their cars? (laughs) Scary. Now you got to pick up your girlfriend on your stolen bike. That way they can't catch you. Hey, we always like to end the show with a, a hero story. And uh, what better place to do that than from Twin Cities, Minnesota. A Minnesota couple anonymously donated $500,000 to encourage charity in their community. Here's the story. The Twin Cities Salvation Army just received their largest donation ever received in the organization's iconic red kettle history. The donors are a Minnesota couple who wish to remain anonymous. 
The Salvation Army said they made the gift in hopes of encouraging others to give as generously as they can. According to the Salvation Army, years ago, the couple faced financial struggles of their own, often relying on discarded food and grocery stores uh, from grocery stores. The donors said in a statement, you get to a point in your life where it's time to take care of others the way you were taken care of. The couple said the donations was also meant to honor one of their fathers who served in World War I and appreciated the donuts and coffee brought to the soldiers by the Salvation Army Donut Girls. Major Jeff Strickler, Twin Cities commander, said in a statement that the Salvation Army is simply stunned and honored to have received such a gift, which is 20 times larger than the prior largest donation of $25,000. So a special shout out to this anonymous couple from Minnesota. We honor you for your great uh, care, your service. And remember, uh, that's what made you the hero of the day. But you don't have to give tons of money to be the hero. You could be the hero by the one ringing the bell for the Salvation Army or the one that's uh, out there volunteering to give the food away, to give the service away. Anyway, hero of the day, folks. We can't uh, do the show without you. We'll be back again tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. Until tomorrow, take care of each other, look after one another, and uh, make it a great one. We'll be back again tomorrow. Take care.